It's time for Twit. I'm Jason Snell sitting in for Leo, who's floating somewhere near Hawaii, I think. We've got a great show. Harry McCracken, Andy Anadko, Rosemary Orchard. We're going to make you laugh. We're going to make you cry. We'll make you laugh again, I promise. It's all next on Twit. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is TWIT, episode number 832, recorded July 18th, 2021. Lorem Ipsum, Dolorsit Amit. This episode of This Week at Tech is brought to you by Checkout.com. Modern businesses need flexible payment systems that can help them adapt to change, grow, and scale fast. Checkout.com is a leading cloud-based global payment solutions provider. Request a free no-commitment demo at checkout.com slash twit. And by IT Pro TV. CompTIA A Plus is the key to your IT career. And as the official video training partner for CompTIA, IT Pro TV will help you get certified. Visit itpro.tv slash twit for an additional 30% off all consumer subscriptions for the lifetime of your active subscription when you use the code TWIT30 at checkout. And by Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door free, go to mintmobile.com slash twit. And by Endava. Subscribe and listen to Tech Reimagined, the podcast from Endava, from wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Twit This Week in Tech. I am not Leo Laporte. I'm Jason Snell sitting in for Leo Laporte, who is on assignment. Uh, I think we crossed planes. I just got back from Hawaii, and he has gone to Hawaii. (laughs) But I'm going to take care of you for this episode. It's all going to be good. And the reason it's going to be good, it's not about me. It's about these three wonderful people who are joining me on this week's episode. To my left... He was my counterpart for many years at PC World when I worked at Macworld. It's Harry McCracken from Fast Company. Harry, thank you for being here. Hey, Jason. Welcome back to the mainland. Thank you very much. It's good to be back. I can say that. I was there long enough that I had a good vacation, and I still felt like it was fine to return to the mainland from the uh, the land of the trade winds. Oh, okay. I take it back. More pineapple <laughs> on pizza? Maybe. Also here... Uh, Rosemary Orchard, who is the host of, among other things, the Automators podcast on Relay FM, one of my favorites. Rose, welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. I also host iOS Today here on Twit for anybody who's not checked that out in a while. I guess if you care about the Twit network, that's fine too. I know everybody's got a show on Twit, everybody's got a show on Relay. <laughs> it's all going on. Oh, okay. I'll do better. I'll do better. He has a show on Relay FM about uh, Android, but I'm not going to introduce him with that. I'm going to say you know him every week from MacBreak Weekly. It's Andy Anatko. Hello. How, how'd I do? How'd I do? I, th- I think you did just great. And also, I think you're really throwing off anybody who was... You, you know how, like, there's there's always those times where there's one person in the comic book who wonders, gee, isn't it weird that both Batman and Bruce Wayne are both in Central City at the same time? So the, the fact that you and Leo Laporte happened to be in Hawaii at the last time, that could have, that could have provoked some people to wonder... If actually we've blown someone's secret identity, don't know which one it was, but by putting your your, your LMD double 
back in Hawaii and coming back here, I think that that's going to really uh, extend your secret identity another 20 years. Well done. It's a beautiful place. Hawaii and Tahiti are both beautiful places. Anyway, we passed the tech podcasting baton temporarily, and so thank you to Leo for inviting me back on. Now, when we do these tech podcasts, i got to be honest, I have two impulses. One of them is to talk about the stories that suggest that technology is terrible and ruining the world, (laughs) and the other one is like, oh, fun gadgets, it's wacky. Uh, We're going to have a little bit of both, but I want to start with a story that broke today. I just want to talk about it a little bit. Broke in the Washington Post, a bunch of different... Uh, news entities behind this, and it is the revelation that the targets of a bunch of really nasty spyware in smartphones have been unveiled. It includes people from, there's basically a long list of phone numbers of people who has have had their phones hacked, supposedly. Uh, this report suggests that the largest number of phones being hacked was in Mexico, uh, also in uh, the Middle East, including Qatar and Bahrain and Yemen and the UAE and Saudi Arabia, but also in India and in Hungary, where uh, the regime is uh, fairly authoritarian. Uh, apparently, journalists who were questioning the Hungarian authorities had their names added to this list. The idea here is that there's this company. Uh, They are Israeli. They're called the NSO Group. They've got a bunch of hacks that they have said, I think, publicly are only supposed to be used for good, which is an interesting, like, okay, no, we won't sell it to anyone bad. We'll only sell it to people who are good. But now these journalists have come up with a very long list of the people who are apparently on this firm's uh, log that have potentially been hacked and had their smartphone hacked. So this is an interesting story because it isn't about the details of the hack as much as it is about the targets and who apparently mostly nations have targeted. And surprisingly, it is politicians, government officials, uh, human rights activists, business executives, and journalists. So uh, this is awful. Hey, panel, what do you think? Uh, welcome to 2021. We got rid of we got rid of COVID with abounding 49 percent of the population, and we feel as though we're, we're ready to move on to the next catastrophe. Yeah, that it's it's just another indication of exactly how bad and prevalent uh, the, the, the spyware is because it's no longer when we when we were young, Jason. We spyware was like a Matthew Matthew Broderick sort of type of person who's trying to like steal a thousand dollars, two thousand dollars. But now it is an operation. It is a business and it's an enterprise and it is uh, worse than that it's a weapon that can be purchased and targeted by a lot of very very bad people uh, operating in a lot of very repressive governments i mean just uh, last month or last week uh, two uh, executives at a French spyware company were actually indicted by, by the French courts uh, on uh, uh, crimes against humanity because they had sold uh, spyware tools to uh, Egypt and uh, Egypt and Libya, uh, and knowing full well that this, these tools could be used to round up people and uh, torture them and and uh, and make them lead to a, a very very terrible terrible end. So, given that they knew what these tools are going to be used for, now we're sort of getting the fact that we are elevating spyware to the level of you can be accused and tried for crimes against humanity by creating and providing these tools to someone who then uses it uh, for murder and torture, that is exactly how weird the 21st century has become. Harry, what do you think about this? One of the 
the notes that I noticed is that Jamal Khashoggi's uh, wife and fiance were both on the list. It's unclear whether he was. And of course, he was then assassinated in the uh, Saudi embassy in Turkey. Like th- there are some real if you connect the dots to what has already been disclosed, it's a pretty serious list of people who are being um, surveilled, apparently. Yes. And I, I think it's more evidence that, well, being randomly hacked is scary. A lot of the really scary stuff involves very precision hacking and people really going after somebody in particular. Unfortunately, journalists sometimes end up on those lists. So uh, there are a lot of people who are, want to keep tabs on them, uh, including authoritarian governments. Um, the uh, the company behind this, I mean, it's it's not a hacking group. It's a company that sells products allegedly for use in things that might be reasonable. Uh, and they have guidelines about how they want their software used. But it's really hard to ensure that it, when you come up with tools like these, that they will only be used for, for applications that everybody can agree might be a reasonable thing to do. Um, yeah. W- one of the things I hear is you don't want to necessarily close exploits in smartphone software because it's used you know, by intelligence agencies to gather information about the bad guys. But this is an interesting case where this is a company, it, they're known, we've known that they've had these tools for a while now, for several years. But when you see how it's used, it does make you realize that a lot of these arguments about, oh, well, these security holes, we can use them for good, um, that's, that's a, a questionable argument. You've got to define what good is. And there are a lot of people out there whose definition of good is radically different than yours or mine. So, Rosemary, what do you think? Is there is there anything uh, that we could call a good security hole? Or is that one of the lessons here is that, <laughs> look, you know, any any hack is a bad hack. We've said this before, whenever governments have said, you know, I, you know, we want a backdoor, but it's only for us that any backdoor that's only for the good guys is also going to be used by the bad guys. Um, And, you know, any software that's released of only use this against bad people, good and white tend to be shades of gray. Okay, there's way more than 50 out there. But, you know, you can never say that, you know, every time that this particular incident happens, it's always for bad reasons or for good reasons. Um, And, you know, I, I think... At the end of the day, this is this is more terrifying than random hacks. Um, it's b- because, you know, people are very much targeted and they can, you know, you can see now an entire list of people who may have known that they were targeted or maybe this has just come out of nowhere for them and they're now questioning a whole bunch of other things that have happened because they've realized that they were being targeted for this. It's, you know, like when scammers get a hold of your phone number and you fall for one scam, every, every other phone call you get from then on is going to be a, a scam caller. Um, um, so, yeah, I, th- I think there, there's never uh, a good hack uh, for things like this. Unfortunately, um, you know, there's there's always things that, um, you know, can be can be used against people in ways that they did not expect. And that is a shame um, when it's the technology that they trust. Yeah, this is why Apple and Google always say, well, look, we're going to close any hole we can find because we can't control who uses this. And they may have some awareness of who, you know, what nations are acting and intelligence services are acting in certain ways. But their goal as the platform owners is to is to close it up. And these are scary, too. Again, you've probably heard about these hacks before because this has been reported before. It's just who was on this list that that is new. And The Guardian uh, in the U.K. reported that they'll be rolling out names. All of these journalistic organizations that are part of this story are going to be rolling out details of who was targeted over this 
next week, so you'll hear more about it. But we have heard some of this before. The idea here is a text message uh, or an iMessage in the case of iPhones is sent. Sometimes you have to click on a link. There are some exploits that actually don't even require you to click on a link. Just receive the message. It's received silently, and that's all that's required, which is terrifying. And, uh, you know, many of these have been plugged, but the idea is there are always more holes out there. And, and uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty terrifying. It's especially if it's completely silent because, you know, I feel like I'm smart enough. I'm not going to click on any dangerous links, which is probably not true in itself, but at least I have some ability to protect myself. And if all that has to happen is that I receive a message, uh, then I'm defenseless. Yeah. Also, when you consider that oftentimes the purpose of this is to identify people that are next to be shot, uh, yes. repatriated and disappeared. And that's absolutely no joke. I mean, you don't, you, it's not just targeting activists. It's uh, targeting activists to find out who, would they, who they're messaging with, who they're making contact with. It's not just journalists. It's who are in their circle. Who, uh, who, who can we bring in on any sort of pretext? It's sim- simple things like who is actually in our country right now that we can nab just to simply send a message and just simply act tough. And again, this is not a case of harassment. This is not a case of, oh, well, you know, thousand, send, uh, send uh, 0.01 Bitcoin to, to this address uh, or else you get your files back. It is people just simply disappear because of intelligence like this. And this is why this is, again, you started off with a real doozy. <laughs> uh, this is why this is such a damn scary piece of news. Yeah, and you can think about journalists also having being threatened into silence is another thing, even if they're not going to be assassinated. And in some of some of these countries, the journalists have been killed, but in other cases, you may have a journalist who is silenced because they're blackmailed or something like that. Yeah, it's a fun story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of fun. My understanding is that Apple and Google have one of the shocker, one of the recent frontiers of uh, security, operating system security has been how incoming text messages are processed, right? You, obviously, <laughs> they look at this. Both of these operating systems, both Android and iOS, hit by similar kinds of bugs. And I'm sure that over the last few years, Google and Apple have put a lot of time and effort into kind of sandboxing as much as possible the input from text messages. Of course, that is the last war and who knows? If Apple and Google know, they're probably not talking about it because they don't want them to know that they know. But, like, there will be a next war, another corner, a soft corner, a soft underbelly of a mobile operating system that will be the locus for even more attacks. And that's going to keep happening. So I guess throw your phone in the water and walk <laughs> away. I don't know. It's a difficult thing because we all rely on our, our phones and on our communication networks uh, but uh, scary to see this and how it's being put into use, right? That's the real scary thing this time. Um, I want to shift gears slightly, but only slightly. I swear I have some fun stories to talk about too, but I want to <laughs> talk about something that Andy sent to me earlier this week. So maybe, Andy, you can get us started. The story here, uh, this uh, in particular is from The Verge, is a retail stores packed with unchecked facial recognition and the idea here is there's a campaign called ban facial recognitions in stores that have identified a whole bunch of stores that are using facial recognition technology on their customers when they're in the stores including apple and (laughs) yes you go into that apple store and uh, your face is getting scanned and using ai to scan faces is uh you know it's been a trend but it is also uh, makes you think, makes you have some privacy concerns. Andy, you sent this article to me. What do you think about it? 
it's just a it's just an indication of exactly how dangerous this technology is uh, how easy it is to use this technology to uh, abuse the power of people who already have a little bit too much power over people who can be victimized without ever ever finding out about it and finally it's part of do we really want to develop into a society where we assume that any time that we leave the house, and even sometimes when we are just walking through a store, uh, walk, walking through a bank, walking through, just going through our lives, that we are being, uh, we're taking part in some sort of a perp walk? I mean, I can't, it's, the thing is, facial recognition, it's, it's one of those really, really delicious sounding technologies where, hey, a camera can simply identify people, which means that if there's someone that has been causing problems at your bar, it'll identify them as soon as he steps in or even before they step in, or uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to catch that person who committed that crime because a security camera will be able to provide a match from, uh, from that face to a database that we have somewhere. And again, that is, uh, that is enticing. It is very, very seductive. But uh, this is this. It's actually uh, probably no uh, no accident that this uh, story dropped this week, uh, because on Tuesday uh, the House committee a House committee had a three and a half lo- hour long uh, uh, meeting uh, with testimony about the use of facial recognition I- in policing. Uh, it, uh, they uh, the the committee asked the General Accounting Office to prepare a report on hey look of the 42 different federal agencies that have police forces uh, how are they how are they using uh, facial recognition technology and the answer came back well because there's absolutely no regulation on how they can how they're supposed to use this they're using it for just about anything they want to use it for they are drawing uh, upon databases, including driver's license photos, passport photos, security cam footage, uh, pictures that they're getting off of social media, mugshot files. So uh, there's a uh, one part of the reports uh, claimed uh, that there is uh, half of every uh, half of the entire United States population is in some sort of a facial recognition database, and again, no controls on it whatsoever. And if you think that uh, if you if even if we don't start discussing the racial bias that is been proven uh, to uh, to befall uh, all of these uh, facial recognition technologies the fact that it is a very very prevalent tool to use to keep harassing uh, parts of society that keep getting harassed people of color uh, muslims any sort of community that get harassed by uh, by a power structure get harassed even worse this story in the verge mentioned out that uh, it's it's not even that I think it was uh, which drugstore um, uh, Rite Aid I think it was that uh, they they are using facial recognition technology but they're not using it in every store they're using it in stores that are in predominantly black areas wow we could not have predicted that uh, and so this is why it kind of disturbed me that uh, the, uh, the part of the, uh, the the House committee meeting on Tuesday was about let's discuss, like, what, let's react to this report, let's get testimony from a whole bunch of different people, and let's at least start to have discussions on what should be done about this. And there were a lot of really good uh, arguments about here's what, here's the, we absolutely need laws, and that was agreed upon by everybody. Here is the sort of regulations that we need to regulate this tightly, and here's the sort of regulations we need. But nowhere was it seriously argued that this technology needs 
to, needs a moratorium. There's actually a, a law uh, being proposed that's uh, that's uh, that's in committee right now that proposes such a thing. It doesn't simply make it. It doesn't make it illegal. It just simply says that uh, there is a moratorium, at least on federal use of facial facial recognition technology, until an act of Congress reverses it. And so it really disappoints me that in all of this conversation uh, about this technology that so many huge corporations are prepared to make huge amounts of money on, there is no discussion about maybe this is just too damaging a technology for our society and maybe we should just keep our hands off of it until we can use it responsibly. Rosemary, you live in the UK where CCTV cameras are on every corner. What is our reasonable expectation of privacy in public? Well, generally the rule is that in public um, there is, you know, you, you don't expect things that happen to actually be private. But the thing is, is stores aren't public. They're private property. They're mm. owned by, well, whoever owns a store and then whoever rents it to, you know, Walgreens or whoever's in it if the company doesn't own it themselves. Um, and I think it's one thing knowing that actions are on camera. So if there's a crime, they can wind back to that timestamp. They can see it. They can find out, you know, okay, this is actually what happened. Therefore, we have this and we can prove that this person's guilty. But then they have to go about identifying the people who are in that who could then potentially also make statements, right? And this is where the facial recognition gets tricky. Because on the one hand, that, you know, say, you know, somebody pushes somebody else out in front of a car. And you want to identify the other people around so that they can also make a statement. And then the person who did the pushing gets prosecuted. Seems like a clear case for good. But then you start getting into, you know, less clear things. And it's exactly the same as before with this technology is supposed to be used for good versus, you know, don't use it for bad things. It's always going to end up being used. And we've seen this here with Rite Aid. They're discriminating. They're not putting it in every single store to use consistently across all of their stores. No, they've started with the low income areas. Um, and I don't know about you, but my my experience with people is there are good people everywhere, regardless of what area they live in, regardless of what walk of life they come from, regardless of the color of their skin, their gender or uh, their sexual orientation, etc. Most people are good people. Um, so discriminating against certain areas just feels worse in this case because, yeah, I mean, it's just terrible. But I don't see what good facial recognition really can do in a store because what have stores have done before and what big companies have done before if there was a problem with a person is that they have photographs of that person in the secure area and for the staff security check that and if they see that person then you know they they say sorry you need to leave um and what are they going to do with facial recognition it's going to ping up a thing that says hey you need to tell this person they need to leave you still need the security there to do the actual work so why not get them to do the recognition? Because people tend to be better at recognizing other people versus a computer who can, which can make more mistakes um, at these things. I have seen, you know, my mom unlock my iPhone. My mom doesn't look that similar to me, but we now have a slightly similar haircut. Um, and Siri has learned as my hair has got shorter uh, what, what I look like and my mom's got shorter hair as well now and oh wait she managed to unlock my phone the other day and no my watch wasn't on my wrist so that is a case of facial recognition gone wrong um, and you know that's something you know innocent it doesn't matter but in the grand scheme of things you know we know that these things are not flawless we know they are not perfect um, 
yeah, I'm, I'm worried about where this may end up going. And uh, I'm glad that some companies have said that they will not be using it. Um, but I also think that maybe state laws here are to blame because I believe CCTV in the US is same to, uh, subject to the same restrictions as uh, audio recordings with microphones. You have one party and two party states where and that then dictates whether or not they have to put up signs that say whether or not there's CCTV. I think that those laws perhaps need to be reviewed. Um, and facial recognition needs to have uh, a separate, you know, clauses for that. Um, and so that people can then perhaps choose to just do their shopping online so that they don't have to be watched. <laughs> yeah, the idea that this is, I hate to make a slippery slope argument, but the idea that, okay, well, we just really want to, we have a known shoplifter and we can uh, identify who they are. And when they come back, we don't even know, need to know who they are. But if we see them again, the security people can be alerted. But, you know, or you're showing your face in public. It's public. And therefore, what's the difference? But once you start building a facial recognition database and now it knows every path you take, if you merge those databases to get together, you have created uh, a panopticon essentially everywhere you go in public is logged every store you go every aisle you linger on and you know the more you talk about putting these things in computers and databases again you can say oh well we're not going to do anything bad with it take us back to our previous story the truth is most of this technology will be used in a bad way by somebody at some point because it's just sort of inevitable and it's completely up to the whim of the retailer by the way, I think Apple says that they don't use facial recognition, which is not the same thing as saying we've never used facial recognition. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's possible that both the, both the claim against Apple and what they're saying are correct. Um, Walmart went from using Clearview AI, which is kind of a worst-case scenario in terms mm-hmm. of being abusive and inaccurate, to now saying that they won't use facial recognition, but they could change their mind tomorrow and there's nothing to prevent them from doing it which I think is one of the reasons why there's such a strong argument for, for legislation playing a role. Because there, there are a bunch of, of uh, major retailers who say they're not going to do it right now, um, but we just have to rely on, on their goodwill and, and what their feelings are right now. And certainly, even if you're really opposed to this technology, it's possible to be somewhat sympathetic to the challenges of running a, a large retail chain having to deal with shoplifting. So I feel like that... Their concern over all the money they lose will ultimately tug them back to some of these technologies. And by the way, I am uh, I am worried about uh, the idea that going online and shopping there is a way to avoid being spied on because it's just a different set of tools that they use <laughs> to spy on us online. But there are, there are lots of those as well. So uh, in the old days, uh, re- you know, in-person retail was kind of appealing because it felt like it was a little bit possible to be anonymous if you went in. And use cash. Okay, with cash, yeah. Uh, But even if you use cash right now, that doesn't mean they're not figuring out who you are. Yeah. Andy, uh, you were the one who said, I was was on the beach in Hawaii when that email came in. Uh, (laughs) And I was was like, uh, this is a good story for Twit, I guess, when I get back to the mainland. Uh, I'll let you have the last word. What do you think about uh, where we're going with this? I, uh, this is not the future that most of us signed up for. Uh, it's, uh, we, we want controls over the things that are most dangerous that could be used to, to hurt us. Um, I don't think it's possible to put the genie back in the bottle. I don't think it's possible to get an outright ban on this technology. Certainly not uh, possible to make it, uh, make it into something that cannot be privately sold to a private company for whatever the, uh, use that they want to make of it. But if, if we're 
what I what I'm hoping is that we don't collectively simply decide that oh this is a great idea we should have more cameras we should have we should have uh, why why are we limiting this to just investigations we should make sure that uh, every single driver's license photo is part of this big database that of, of facial recognition uh, we the thing is we understand that when we lift this gun and we pull this trigger big bang happens and lots of distractions happen we don't understand exactly what is happening and what the damage is going to be done with this and that's the real scary thing about any new piece of technology yeah. you get focused on the bang uh, and the flash and not on well if this machine is designed to, to punch a uh, punch an explosive hole into whatever it's aimed at you can say it's for law enforcement you can say it's for target shooting you can say it's for it's for uh, it's for game hunting this is what the machine does do not ignore that this is what the machine does and what it will always do well and i i do think that in the end um laws will need to be written in order to clarify what can and can't be done because it's one thing when facial recognition is Johnny, the security guard, saying, hey, I remember that guy. Uh, It's another thing when there's a database uh, and there are multiple databases and what's their data policy and are they sharing the data? And that's when you need really somebody to say, we need some rules here about how you do and don't use that. And uh, hopefully we will get some. At some yeah. point, very, very very quickly, there was one of the, one of the most important pieces of testimony was a gentleman in Michigan who was arrested for shoplifting based solely on a uh, a, a security camera uh, that supposedly matched his face to uh, to the actual perpetrator's face, and the investigator just said, "Okay, good enough for me." Arrested, arrested this man, African American man, in a, in his home in front of his wife and his kids. And as soon as they got him to the station, everybody looked at these him in the picture and said, "No, no way. This is no. This is clearly not the same person." But he took him all day uh, to be at the police station. Uh, and yes, it's true that the invest. I believe that the investigator actually got got uh, uh, got beaten down a rank. Uh, and punished because uh, the entire department was saying this is a disgrace. This is not. Uh, this is not a proper investigation. But it just goes to show, with the lack of any regulations whatsoever, it is possible for someone to simply say, "Well, the computer says there's an 82 percent chance that this is these two are the same people. I'm going to. I'm going to issue an arrest warrant." All right. Well, we will. I, I promise. I'll. I'll come up with something a little more happy <laughs> in the next segment. Uh, but before that, what would make you happier than hearing? the beautiful voice of leo laporte telling you about something that you should be interested in leo hey kids leo laporte here yes i know i'm in hawaii thank you jason snell for filling in it's been a great show so far i don't i don't i hope you don't mind i just want to interrupt to introduce a brand new sponsor to you all checkout.com you know as much as we love technology it shouldn't get in the way uh, whether it's an e-commerce platform or just interrupting innovation. And I have to say that there we are currently burdened with some obsolete payment systems. They're heavily layered. They're disconnected. Uh, they're a cost center to the business. It's not what you need. If you're a modern business, you need a flexible payment system that can help you adapt, change, grow, scale fast. And I want to tell you about a company with tech that approaches payments through a radical new lens. It's got a great name, easy to remember, Checkout.com. Checkout did a lot of research on this space. They partnered with Oxford Economics, did an end-to-end analysis of the payments value chain for merchants. One big problem, and I think everybody who, who, who does this knows, 
is decline credit cards for a variety of reasons. And they cost. They cost a lot. They cost the U.K., U.S., French, and German markets a total of $20.3 billion last year alone. $12.7 billion went to competitors. $7.6 billion completely written off. That's shocking by itself, but there's more. The study found merchants are not currently optimizing the consumer's significant willingness to pay for speed, convenience, and security online. Most merchants do not feel their payments data is informing their business strategy or their innovation. In fact, 56% of the customers surveyed said that they won't come back to a site because the site doesn't offer their preferred payment method. They don't make it easy. Here's another shocking statistic. Most merchants spend more than 10% of their payments budget fixing disputes, fraud, outages. This is costing you. CEOs are more likely to overestimate the quality of data returned to them by payment providers. CEOs tend to underestimate the extent to which disconnected payments are hindering growth. Most merchants focus on the per-transaction costs of their payments, ignoring the back-end costs. So this research really helped Checkout define clearly what their model was going to be. They are a leading cloud-based global payment solution provider. Their payment platform is purpose-built with some very important priorities. Simplicity, scalability, and speed. They're perfect for any merchant who wants to seamlessly integrate better payment solutions globally. You get improved acceptance globally, better and more actionable granular data. You get a flexible product structure that merchants can adapt to their needs. And it's combined with really personal white glove service. So just check out the brands they're using Checkout.com across the globe. Pizza Hut, TransferWise, Klarna, Revolut, Samsung, all use Checkout.com. Look, I know when I use a payment system, if it's not fast, if it's not easy, if I can't, if I don't feel like I can trust it, I am either going to end, end that transaction right there before I push the buy button or I'm not coming back. That's why Checkout.com is so important. It, may, it, it builds trust with your customers. It's speedy. It's simple. Customers love it. Checkout.com. It's the dominant choice for organizations that are looking for the fastest, most innovative and reliable global payment solution provider. Look, I want you to request a free, there's no commitment, demo at Checkout.com slash twit. Checkout.com slash twit. Get your free demo. Checkout dot com slash twit we thank him so much for supporting this week in tech appreciate it thank you check out and, and please if you want to check out check out <laughs> use that address so they know you saw it here checkout.com slash twit now back to the show thank you leo uh okay what can we do what can we do next well sad news of a sort but it's not going to bring you down like uh some other sad news i got some twitter news for you fleets is no more. Twitter is shutting down fleets. If you thought that every single site in existence was going to have its own version of Instagram stories, um, Twitter won't anymore because that's what fleets was. And I'm going to take this as good news. I don't know. I know all of my panelists are on Twitter just like I am. I love the idea that Twitter rolled out a feature, looked at it, said, nah, you know what? <laughs> doesn't really work we're going to get rid of it and move on and do something different so even though i'm sure that the five people who really liked fleets are going to be sad um i'm choosing this 
as a positive? I want to I want to view this as a positive. Uh, panelists, you're going to miss fleets. Is this okay? You mourning <laughs> sackcloth, ashes, weeping. How can, I, how can I miss fleets when I never actually fleeted or checked them out? <laughs> uh, it, um, it, it turns out that Twitter got excited about fleets, which are really a, a knockoff of stories, which were invented by Snapchat and then became even more popular on Instagram and then were copied by everybody. Literally everybody. Um, Twitter thought it might be a way to get people who kind of lurk in Twitter and don't actually create content um, to do stuff. That's like the eternal challenge for Twitter is that most of the tweets come from a very small group of people. And, and guess who uh, used fleets? And so they, they launched fleets, <laughs> and it, it turned out the people who already loved doing stuff on, on Twitter and tweeting also liked fleeting. But, th- but these kind, kind of casual <laughs> lurkers did not use them, so they did not actually really fulfill the goal that, that Twitter had for itself. And so it makes perfect sense. And I suspect you will see some of the other many, many apps and services that knocked off stories also um, rethinking them uh, because um, they make a lot of sense in a certain number of instances, but it's not like LinkedIn needs stories or... Or Slack. Or Slack or Mm -hmm. or, uh, Twitter, it turned out. Andy, are you mourning fleets? Or is this good that Twitter is mature enough to give up? You know, I I thought there were more people at Mass this morning. I thought that the prayers (laughs) were a little bit more solemn. I didn't know why, and now I guess I know why. I mean, it's, it, it hits the Catholics uh, hardest, uh, really, uh, when Twitter makes a makes a makes a, a, a feature deletion like that. Sick transit uh, no, fleet. Um... Exactly. Something. <laughs> now, go, now, now going forth to favored and like the Lord. Uh, but there's uh, the, 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 the you know, I mean. Uh, I, I, the, the biggest problem of any service or any software, really anything, is when they f- lose sight of who they are, what they're about, and why people like them. Instagram could in- could integrate something like this very, very well because it really is a, about I want to I, I want to see a, a little piece of media from somebody that doesn't take that long to really access or digest. Perfect fit. Twitter. People, every time Twitter tries to be something other than Twitter, people reminded that we like you because you're Twitter. You don't, you don't have to, don't, you don't have to part your hair on a different side. You don't have to start liking, you know, uh, albums from Bowie's Berlin days. Uh, you, you just be you, and because this is this is why we have given you this tentacle-like grip of control and power over our society. Because the thing that the 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 the, the mechanism by which you make us suffer is very very effective, very very addictive, and we we underscribe it very very strongly don't try to make yourself into a multimedia platform you're not one and we have plenty of options rosemary do you miss fleets are you gonna already miss them how can you miss them if uh, they're already gone i don't know i mean stop trying to make fleets happen it's just not gonna happen <laughs> yeah, um go. so i thought fleets were coming soon and then i saw this news and went oh they already happened <laughs> oh. um so yeah i never fleeted uh that's probably a good thing i i rarely use instagram but i wonder if part of the problem with this is twitter didn't make this available to uh everybody else through their api as far as i could tell put it this way tweetbot never implemented it right. i use tweetbot mm-hmm. to access twitter Therefore, I did not see fleets. Full stop. <laughs> um, and I feel like maybe this is where apps like Instagram and so on can do much better. Because if you want to access Instagram, you have to use the Instagram app. And therefore, they can roll features out using their ABZ testing um, or, you know, just to everybody, whatever they want to do. Um, but yeah, it, Twitter is not Instagram. 
Um, and uh, I think they should probably stop trying to make fleets happen. So uh, it's yeah, it, I, I, I never quite got the idea of it. Like, why, why would I want to do this on Twitter? I uh-huh. have Instagram for that. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there was a mismatch there for sure. Um, I do have a twist to this story, by the way. The positive twist here is that Twitter is also making some other things happen that might actually be worth making happen. But I do want to mention Twitter bought a few weeks ago a great website. They bought a company that happened to have already bought this website called Nuzzle. And if you don't know about Nuzzle, Nuzzle was a a news aggregator. It was kind of a newsreader, except it used your Twitter feeds and other people's Twitter feeds or Twitter lists as the raw material and would parse those links and see like, if a lot of your friends link to a story, that would be the top story on your Nuzzle page. And it was a really nice way to turn a Twitter feed into a news feed um, instead of a discussion feed. Because sometimes you want to see the discussion and sometimes you just follow a bunch of smart people who have got a lot of good links. And Nuzzle is now shut down, which makes me sad. But in announcing the acquisition, Twitter said they were going to implement – they were looking toward implementing a version of Nuzzle on Twitter. And I thought, well, there you go. That's a feature that probably should be part of Twitter. It probably worked better as part of Twitter, the idea that you could sort of have a news view into Twitter. So I'm hopeful there. And what gives me more hope that maybe Twitter's product group has turned it around a little bit is another announcement this week, which is that Twitter on iOS now lets you edit who can reply to your old tweets now this is a feature that they rolled out for new tweets where you could say only my followers or only the people mentioned here or nobody can reply to this tweet and that was a little bit interesting but a little bit weird this new feature though i really like because it suggests that somebody at twitter knows about dogpiling finally the idea that you do a perfectly innocuous tweet and then somewhere somehow a large group of people come and start replying to it and harassing you and with this new feature twitter's showing hey wouldn't it be nice if you could take that feature that that tweet that you regret you don't regret the text you regret that it's being engaged with in this way and sort of say yeah I don't want anybody replying to that anymore or only the people I was talking to, uh, you know, and do it after the fact. I think it's so smart. And it's one of the first examples I've seen in a long time of Twitter actually getting how its service is not just used, but misused. Twitter has always had this reputation for kind of overthinking everything and then being paralyzed by the idea of changing anything and thinking it over (laughs) endlessly. So I'd say that both Twitter getting rid of things and Twitter adding things. They're both promising signs. Uh, yeah, I don't know if uh, Andy and Rose, I don't know if you've been dogpiled before, but like I've had those innocuous tweets go where it goes into some other subculture yes. and they have interpreted <laughs> it in a so, totally weird way that was never intended. And I would love to shut it down and it's too late. And now with this feature, you could shut it down. Yeah. But the big problem is when it's it's something you said like four or five years ago that's now stripped uh, stripped of all context. And uh, I, I feel as though if you said it, maybe you should keep it up there. But there's something doubly stinging about if when it becomes uh, reactivated, you know, and fresh batteries and fresh charge are put into it. And now people are getting social media uh, cred over 
replying and retweeting it and making their making their replies uh, uh, get lots of likes and lots of retweets. And then somebody who is working for a website who has to have three things up over the course of the afternoon wants. Oh, suddenly this is suddenly this is a trending topic, and there's nothing. There's something else to to really talk about. So yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I think that uh, Twitter is becoming a lot more conscious of how um, how its service can be both directly weaponized by bad people and also just incidentally just cause the storm cloud to uh, to hover over someone who really doesn't deserve to be rained on uh, and they're trying to address this step by step by step wherever they can so yeah i hope this is part of a, of a growing trend now, i had a, a tweet in the early days uh when i was at Macworld, uh early days of the iphone early days of twitter and it was one of those days where, like, there were lines around the block for the iPhone 3GS or something. And I tweeted. And it was back in the day when Twitter was super casual. Like, literally, yeah. you wouldn't – there weren't retweets. You couldn't really put quote tweets. You, there was no context. And I did a tweet that was like, yeah, I, sarcastically, yeah, I guess this, um, this iPhone thing is not going to work out. <laughs> and on an iPhone anniversary, like, two years ago, I suddenly got dunked on by all these people who were like, get a load of this guy who didn't <laughs> think the iPhone would be successful. And it was like – that's not what that tweet was at all. But again, it was just raw material for somebody to kind of stoke the the hate machine on Twitter. And uh, if I had this feature, would I turn off all replies to that tweet and just quiet it down? Yeah, I probably would. Instead, I just deleted it because I, I stand by my sarcastic comment about the iPhone 3GS line, I guess. Yep. But it's not worth it. So this is why people delete old tweets, I guess. It would be nice to auto-freeze comments on old tweets. That, that would make Actually, sense. Actually, yeah. Yeah, and, and again, I, I feel like this move makes me think Twitter actually has some people getting features implemented that understand all the ways that Twitter is used kind of in, a, in an unpleasant way that maybe they could shut down and make it a better thing. Yeah, yeah. I think we all know people who have a, a service go through and delete old tweets. Some people have it very aggressively, delete anything older than 24 hours. Other people leave it a couple of weeks or a month or so. Um, and, you know, that's just proof that something like this is needed and it should be automated. I'm not saying that because I love automation. I'm saying that because realistically, after a month, you probably don't want people replying to your tweets. Um, after a month has passed, you know, Twitter is what 280 characters that is not a lot of text things get taken out of context incredibly easily even from a full-length novel so it's no surprise that that happens on twitter all the time right i like having my old tweets because i i can there's sometimes there's gold back there where you quote something and you're like oh my god can you believe this happened five years ago or whatever i'd hate to yeah. delete them all but i understand why people do and yeah i like that idea that's you know you see that in forums all the time too the idea that that forum threads get locked after a while because yeah. you know why why continue reviving this thing after the fact all the context has been lost well anyway good job whoever out there did that for twitter Thumbs up Just, to you. But, but, but Rose had a really good point that that would be a lovely feature to simply say uh, every all of my tweets should, should expire after 30 days. Just delete them after 30 days. Right. Or lock them. Probably. Or, 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 lock, or lock them. But the, the good thing about deleting them is that uh, if you're if you're personal philosophy and policy is that none of the things that I put on this Twitter account are going to be really relevant uh, a month from now, two months from now, three months from now. So I may as well get rid of them so that people don't people uh, people will understand that I said this at a time when the Red Sox were in game six and <laughs> looks like they're going to be thrown out of the postseason again. And I was really, really on edge. And so I said some angry things about the pitching staff <laughs> that maybe I regret saying right now uh, that I, I regret 
say right now. Uh, but the, the thing is, if I had gone back and selectively deleted stuff that I thought was going to get me in trouble, that's kind of suspicious in and of itself. People should ask, gee, why is it that people seem to be mentioning something uh, relation to, to a tweet that doesn't exist anymore? Whereas if you simply say, well, look, of course, there's if, if you want to if you want to find out my background by checking my Twitter feed. I mean, just as a as a matter of policy, nothing over 30 days old is, is still on my feed. I just have it automatically deleted. There's no malice about this. I don't pick and choose to make myself look smarter or more uh, or more enlightened. I just simply have these have this policy where 30 days, uh, 30 days is the freshness state, uh, just like a Twinkie. I think the idea here is that you're you're giving Twitter users choices that are features that really need to be in Twitter. And there are these weird things. Like Rose mentioned, you can wire up a weird API kind of app that will go and auto-delete your tweets, but really that should be a feature of Twitter. Uh, you know, the, the, it shouldn't be a third-party opportunity, and and likewise, locking tweets should be a, a, a feature of Twitter. And and uh, I, I'm not maybe I'm reading too much into the tea leaves here, but I look at this feature and the ability to lock these tweets manually after a while, and I think, oh, a good sign that maybe they get it. So uh, <laughs> more please, I guess I would say to Twitter, more please. Um, I want to pivot here to something that I found really, really fun, which is uh, what can't you do on an iPad? Now, I'm, I'm a big iPad <laughs> fan. I didn't bring my iPad today, but I'm a huge iPad fan. And I've been watching Harry McCracken's Twitter feed <laughs> about all the things he's been doing with a particular app called iDOS, uh, include, which led this week to Benj Edwards writing a whole story about how you can actually run uh, Windows 3.1 entirely finally windows on the ipad like windowing except no it's that not that windows it's actual windows 3.1 or if you really want uh you can also run uh a trs80 and again these are things that computers can emulate stuff but to see it on an ipad uh where we've been trained sort of no there's you don't do things like that on an ipad has been uh a lot of fun so harry uh how, how did you get into this and what what have you done what oh my god what have you done well um you know, emulators for old computers have been around for a long time. Like almost as soon as the old computers started being old computers, right. people were emulating them. And uh, I'd say for a while, I've sort of idly wondered whether it was possible to run TRS-80 software on an iPad. And um, not surprisingly, it's not obvious how you do that because Apple probably is not going to allow a TRS-80 emulator under the App Store, even if somebody builds one. But I, it then it dawned on me that there is actually an emulator which is available on the App Store, and that's IDOS 2. Um, IDOS has been around for, I think, about a decade, and it was on the store. Then it got kicked off, then it came back. And last year, Apple allowed IDOS to have access to files and to treat a folder like a hard drive, which makes it very easy to drag old software into a folder and have it access to it. And it suddenly dawned on me that there are DOS TRS-80 emulators, and I have access to DOS on my iPad, so maybe I will be able to emulate my TRS-80 on my iPad, and I discovered it works really well. Uh, and then while I was continuing to fool around, I thought, uh, I'm not really sure what versions of Windows are compatible with iDOS, but maybe Win 3.1, being old and relatively simple is, and I installed it, which took like 30 seconds. Uh, <laughs> and it actually works really well, too. And uh, because at Fast Company, 
writing how-tos about emulating old computers is not really our thing. It dawned on me that Ben Jedwards uh, at How To Geek, his thing is a writing how-tos and b writing about old, old computers. Mm-hmm. So I suggested to Ben that he write about this, and he was nice enough to do so and to give me credit. Um, so I got to bask in the glory of, of the cool story he wrote about this topic. <laughs> so how how do you feel about the? It, does it feel weird or does it feel strangely normal to run? a TRS-80 application or to run Windows 3.1 on the iPad? Do you just sort of, once once you're in there, does the, the screen fall away and you're just back at your, your desk in 1985? It works remarkably well, I have to say. For TRS-80, I, I, I should say. I kind of assume that uh, it might be quirky and it might not work. Um, I'm running uh, a beta of... Uh, iPad OS 15, and there are a few issues with the keyboard occasionally freezing when you first go in. But and you also have to figure out stuff like how the keyboards map because with the TRS-80, um, the TRS-80 keys are being mapped to uh, IDOS, which then has to be mapped to the iPad's keyboard. Um, so I was sort of I sort of just randomly hit keys until I realized how to do it. But but it works surprisingly well with Windows 3.1. Um, the main thing I had to do uh, is, A, you have to install um, sound drivers, but um, DOSBox, which is the technology that, that uh, IDOS uses, supports Sound Blaster, and you can upgrade to a, a better graphics driver. And I found that slowing down the, um, the uh, Windows mouse tracking helped. Oh, by the way, the other thing about Windows in particular is, is that um, it only works at all because Apple introduced cursor support relatively recently. Right. With, with, without that, Windows would not really make sense, and, and now it does. Now, those who are not watching the video version of this or are not in the relatively studio speaking. with us, I'm staring at Harry's screen, which is sitting at a DOS prompt right now, which is just freaking me out because it's in the uh, smart keyboard here. And um, again, emulation is one thing, but the idea that, of it happening on an iPad where we... There the rules used to be you couldn't emulate anything on on right. uh, iOS, but that's no longer the case. And so now we have this uh, this app, and, and it's not the only one. I wanted to mention a couple of apps that are really great. If uh, right, like iOS doesn't have a terminal either, like the Mac does or or Windows does. But there is an app called A Shell and another app called ISH ish ISH. That is, uh, those are both. Believe it or not, I believe. ISH, at least, is emulating an Intel PC running Linux, but it works, <laughs> and it means you can run Python scripts or Perl scripts on an iPad, just like you can play uh, Solitaire in Windows 3.1. Boy, that takes me back to uh, the 90s there, Harry. Um, and, and, I, and I think maybe Apple knows what it's doing. It, it, this is not something that's randomly squeaked by the guidelines. It's possible that Apple says... This is not really a security concern. Um, you know, Apple also gets concerned about somebody essentially building their own app ecosystem on top of theirs. Um, there's prop- Imagine you know- the TRS-80 <laughs> software in-app purchase possibilities Right, here. right. And yeah, 30-year-old Windows apps or 40-year-old TRS-80 apps are probably not going to kill Apple's business. Uh, so I'm hoping that they kind of are doing this because... Maybe they don't think it's cool, but maybe they also at least don't object to it. So what was your favorite rediscovery on the TRS-80 side? I didn't have a TRS-80. I, this is going to shock people. I had an Apple II, but, um, but I had a friend with a TRS-80. And so like, what, what jumped out at you is like, oh, I can't believe this, this app that either you never saw or that you remember fondly. Well, one interesting discovery is that um, there were a couple of guys who wrote a lot of the best um, 
arcade games for the TRS-80, which, which was a real challenge because the TRS-80 did not officially support sound at all. And it had extremely blocky graphics, but they managed to write some fun arcade games. So there's and, a Donkey Kong. And, for- and, and uh, they thought, you know, this was when Donkey Kong was new and hot, and they thought, maybe if we write Donkey Kong, we can convince Nintendo to uh, let us license the rights to it. So they wrote a really good Donkey Kong, and they took it to Nintendo, who... Knowing that Nintendo, it's not a great shock that Nintendo was not interested in this. But um, about 10 years after that, in the 90s, they uh, released their version of Donkey Kong, which... We are now going to attempt to run. Yes, let me see if I can... (laughs) I love this. I love emulation in general. Um, uh, I I actually copied all my Apple II discs over... A couple of years ago from high school so that I could have access to it turns out the terrible things, these stupid high go. school things that I wrote as a <laughs> as a teenager, but I've got them now forever, yes. so that's great, I guess. So this was written in 82, released in the 90s, and um, and again, this is not none of the ch- graphical charm of the original Donkey Kong, because no, you, you can't black, do that on a tier city. black and white graphics, but, but, but the, it's recognizably Donkey Kong. That's the thing that gets me about it. Is the that, gameplay is really surprisingly good. Uh, yeah. There were other... Back in those days, there was a fake everything for the TRS-80. So there were other fake Donkey Kongs <laughs> and Pac-Man and Space Invaders. Yeah, that, that does sum up the TRS-80 experience, I think, as my re- recollection is that there were a lot of sort of alternatives to what was available elsewhere for the TRS-80. It was uh, spunky in that way, right? It was sort of unloved by a lot of people and, and so spunky. I've enjoyed re- uh, acquainting myself with text-based adventures. Um, a guy named Scott Adams, not the Dilbert guy, right. but the, the original. Those were my first text game, adventures, Game writing too. Scott Adams yeah. did, did some great games, which are still fun. Uh, Zork, which was the most sophisticated in terms of letting you talk and complete mm-hmm. sentences and having a, a lot of humor and atmosphere to it, is still fun. And you can also play more modern versions of Zork, but it's kind of fun to get the actual experience I had uh, when I was in high school with the very plain white text on black background interface. So if you uh, if you'd like more, you should definitely check out Ben Edwards' story about running Windows 3.1 on an iPad. It's kind of mind blowing. It can be done. Um, and follow Harry on Twitter because you will get not only TRS-80 information, um, but uh, other Radio Shack related information. It's very it's my favorite Radio Shack fan site is Harry's Twitter page, and uh, also all of Harry's great stories at uh, Fast Company. But but you know I'm I'm there for the Radio Shack. I'm going to be honest. Uh, on my way here today, I visited the Radio Shack in Santa Rosa, which is abandoned, but like in its original form, they still have the Radio Shack sign outside. It's almost as if they decided to build a shrine. Um, we went to uh, Target when we were on Maui, and there was a Radio Shack right down the, the way. I'm wow. sure closed, but I saw the sign. I thought of you, actually. I thought, <laughs> oh, Harry, should I go over there and take a picture of this Hawaii Radio Shack just for Harry? And I'm kind of kicking myself now. People pretty much do think of me now when they think of Radio Shack. <laughs> it's a personal brand. It's not a bad personal brand to have if you're going to have a personal brand. All right, we're going to be back with more, probably some downers again, maybe some other fun stuff, too. Yeah, you know, but first, let's listen to Leo again. I think he's got something important to tell us. This episode of Twit is brought to you as it has been for many years by IT Pro TV. I know anybody who listens to our shows loves technology, right? Maybe you're thinking, I want to build a career in IT. Well, of course, if you ask around, the first thing people are going to say is CompTIA A+. That's the cert more companies want, most people get. It's your beginning of your IT career. 
It is the cert, the A-plus cert from CompTIA. It'll expand your horizons, whether it's location, pay, or employer, get you a better job because it shows you got the stuff, you know your material. Now, here's the good news. IT Pro TV is an official, the official video training partner for CompTIA. So not only are you going to get the search you need, you're going to get training you'll enjoy along the way. IT Pro TV is famous for their edutainers, people who are pros in the field, who know their stuff, but who are also really great at communicating and even entertaining as you learn. They make IT learning fun and interesting. IT Pro TV is the best online source for IT education, and not just for individuals, for, for teams too, for organizations as well. IT Pro TV gives you the most up-to-date information while preparing you for the exams that give you the certs employers are truly looking for in their uh, future IT employees. If you're already in IT, it helps you recertify. It helps you keep your skills up. helps you get a better job. It's all right. I won't tell the boss. helps you get a better job. This is a great month to find out about IT Pro TV because it's CompTIA month. So... What does that mean? Well, IT Pro TV will be featuring two CompTIA-themed webinars. Uh, Don Pezet's Technado podcast will have two CompTIA guests, so you get to hear from the people behind CompTIA. All through the month, they'll be giving away CompTIA exam vouchers. That's nice. And then at the end of the month, Friday, July 30th, 2 p.m., it's CompTIA Jeopardy Live, IT Pro TV. You're not going to want to miss this. Uh, all of that's available to all of you. IT Pro TV's seven studios, over 58 hours of on-demand IT training make it the perfect environment for you to not only learn IT, but to polish your skills, to get new certs. And because IT Pro TV keeps those seven studios hot all day, Monday through Friday, they're always updating the content. They've always got, you know, they're teaching to the latest tests. They're, they're, they're working with the latest versions of software. When new stuff comes out, new certs, new software, they've got the information you need. That's really a defining difference for IT Pro TV. And it's not just CompTIA, it's Apple, it's Microsoft, it's Cisco, it's security skills, it's Python, and, and on and on and on. IT Pro TV makes it so easy to get a good IT education because you can do it anytime you want from the comfort and convenience of your own home on your own schedule. Uh, they know a lot of you have jobs, maybe jobs that you don't love, you want to get into IT, they're going to make it easy for you. They're live or on demand worldwide via Chromecast. They have a Roku app, an Apple TV app. You can watch on your PC. You can watch on an iOS or Android device. They make it very easy to get this content. Uh, there's lots of reviews on the site, but here's one from an IT pro guy working in IT now. This site has helped me with two certifications, but also as the supplemental material for my grad school classes. Give it a try. You won't be disappointed, he says. Go to itpro.tv slash twit. The offer code twit30 gets you 30% off all consumer subscriptions. itpro.tv slash twit. Again, the offer code twit30 for 30% off the lifetime of your active subscription. As long as you stay active, you save 30%. That's fantastic. IT Pro TV. Build or expand your IT career and enjoy the journey with IT Pro TV. IT Pro TV is at itpro.tv slash twit. Again, that offer code twit30. Thank you so much, IT Pro TV, Tim and uh, Don, for supporting our shows. Uh, we're really happy to be partnered with you. itpro.tv slash twit. Now back to Jason and the gang. Thank you, Leo. It's weird. Uh, he's sitting where I'm sitting. It's like there's a little strange. We should do a, like a morph or something there. It would be very strange. Uh, 
I want to talk about Facebook for a moment. And no, wait, wait, where are you going? Where are you going? Come back. <laughs> Come back. Uh, I used to do a podcast with Stephen Hackett over at Relay FM where we did uh, uh, news of the week, kind of like Twit. And we ended up essentially having to do a Facebook is terrible segment every week. <laughs> it was uh, kind of soul crushing after a while, but there's some Facebook news. I, I thought we would at least mention it. Uh, one is a story that came out this week about how Facebook has fired dozens of people over abusing access to user data. This is from a book. Uh, it, it, uh, it came out this week. It's actually kind of old news in that these were things that happened five, six years ago. But the story is chilling because this is one of those examples where somebody with access at Facebook uh, basically wanted – like one of them was gotten an argument with his girlfriend and she left their hotel room and he used the Facebook back end to find where her location was. It's stuff like that, like really creepy, weird stuff that uh, at the very least, if it doesn't say that Facebook was bad because they did fire these people apparently, but also that Facebook's policies regarding access to information – are uh, were, were really weak and questionable and allowed these people to do these things. So that's not great. And then the other Facebook news, I'm just going to roll them together here and then let all of you uh, react as you choose, was there was literally a Surgeon General's warning against Facebook this week. Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General, released a statement warning people about COVID vaccine misinformation on Facebook. And Facebook responded and said, no, 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 we're actually great in a way that was not convincing, I would say, to most anybody. But uh, what, what, what a situation to be in when the Surgeon General is saying that you are a, your website is a health danger to the people of the United States. So it's going great, everybody. It's going great. Andy? Can somebody uh, flash the this is fine uh, up on the yep, screen? Is, you know, sure. the it's all good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't buy this kind of publicity. You know, you know who else the Surgeon General has come up against, ladies and gentlemen? Cigarettes, tobacco, the most important and successful industry in the world. Oh, we're going places. We're going places. Free two foodie two foodie scoops for everybody this week. Yeah, that was that was not a not a proud day and not a proud week and not a proud month for not a especially proud company. Um, the uh, the book that uh, has the had those uh, those stories. Uh, an Ugly Truth, Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination by Shira Frankel and Cecilia Kang. Uh, very well researched, very well reported. Um, I got my copy like f- uh, late last week. I'm not done reading it yet. But yeah, it, it makes a... as. You open the book knowing that this is the this is the the tech company that I trust the least that I think is doing the most damage and is the most reckless of all the ones that uh, if there are five five to ten companies that most people could name of those companies absolutely the worst of the lot and I open the I open the the, the cover and I hear the crinkle of the of the spine and yet I'm not prepared for the enormity of the case that these two reporters make. It's just they're making, it's not just a, a, a series of anecdotes. They really do forensically make the case that this is not a company that particularly cares about its imp- its impact on people and society at large, that they care about bad press. That's uh, it. They, they, and that's it. And uh, they have a very dysfunctional uh, co-heads at the very, very top that basically if they don't want something done, it doesn't 
doesn't get done, which means that the people who are who report to them are like filter every single decision through is is Zuckerberg likely to care about this? No, then it's not a problem. I got the just, impression that the question that they ask is how can we fix this so that nobody mentions it again, which is not right. the same thing as how can we fix this full stop. Yeah. It's a yeah. PR. Pro- it's a PR problem. It's not a problem where they are again weaponizing social media against the political, the democratic political process. So long as they're, so long as someone wipes their fingerprints off the knife, they feel they feel as though they're still doing their responsibility for their fiduciary responsibility to shareholders. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, as somebody said in the chat room, the Facebook apology department must be on vacation. I, I want to know why these people have got access to personal data. In general, because clearly they shouldn't be trusted with it. And secondly, why they're allowed access to the personal data of people they know. Uh, Because that, I mean, I get that it's more complicated to say you're allowed access to some personal data, but not of anybody that you actually know. I'm very well aware of that. But, you know, people will abuse these things. We have to remember humans suck. There are great people out there. There are bad people out there. We have to expect that at some point somebody's going to do something stupid. Um, and, uh, yeah, people share stupid information. We're all well aware of that. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I wonder why. I, I've worked for plenty of jobs where data security was a thing. And you know what they did? They didn't give me access to data unless I absolutely had to have it. And then I got access to the absolute minimum amount of data for the absolute minimum amount of time. And then my access was yoinked as I requested it because I don't want to be responsible for anything that goes horribly, horribly wrong. Uh, and I kind of feel that that's what Facebook should be doing. But I guess maybe they they, they didn't figure that out yet. Yeah, and this other story, uh, the Surgeon General's warning, this is a similar sort of thing, which is they're basically saying there's a very small number of people who are responsible for most of the vaccine misinformation that's in social media. It's a very small number. It's not actually hard to find out who these people are. Um, And the challenge is, what they say is that people's Facebook social circles are amplifying this information, and it's leading to all sorts of misinformation that, of course, leads to people not getting vaccinated, which is the safest course of action to not dying of COVID-19. And Facebook's response, again, seems to be damage control. And it's from somebody called their director of integrity, which is funny because it's such a misleading statement. It sort of (laughs) refers to the general Facebook population and how they're trending the same as the general public in terms of vaccine opinions. But of course, it's not about the general population. It's actually about a very specific hesitant population. And and of course, Facebook also has all the data. And when we do have stories about Facebook data becoming public, as we did a few weeks ago, Facebook's reaction tends to be, oh, uh, we're going to shut that down. <laughs> we don't want actually any of that data to be public. And, and I, I mean, I know, look, we beat up Facebook a lot. I'm sure that it happens all the time here. It's happened on other podcasts I've done. They're not always the worst possible case, but they are enough times that I don't think they've got any benefit of the doubt from most of us about how they do their, their business. In answer to um, Rose's question about why these people had access to this data, it's apparently because when you're writing code, it actually is useful to have access to the, the data that your code is about, and that trumped privacy concerns to a great degree, it sounds. It's, it sounds like just a vast number of engineers at Facebook... It would have been less efficient. ...had, had access to the data with, with very little oversight. Yeah. Um, and, um, and the book, you know, I think, essentially uh, puts that on Mark Zuckerberg. He, he, he had the option 
of uh, putting privacy first and making it way harder to, for uh, these people to get access to the data and having a, a far smaller number of people with access to it. And, uh, and instead, Facebook opted for the, the uh, approach that was good in terms of moving fast and building stuff, which is yeah. always you know, top of mind for that company. Yeah, I just want to yeah. jump as in as a software developer and say this is what mock data is for, fake data. Yes. And then you have testers who test your code with real data on a completely separate server. That That's how that really should work. All other companies can do this. Facebook has the money. They need to do that. One of the big trends these days with AI is synthetic data, where you, you take the real data and you're able to essentially to convert it into stuff based on the actual data but with no privacy concerns because it's no longer that data and um, it seems logical and maybe Facebook is doing this in some cases. I, I don't know that they're not. Right. This was several years uh, ago when this, yes. these but incidents it, happened. It seems like they have the opportunity to, to get what they need from the, the data with way fewer privacy concerns. Oh, that's great stuff. I, I wanna, I'm going to do a little plug here for a book. Uh, by tech journalist Charles Arthur. It just came out last week, I think, two weeks ago, called Social Warming, The Dangerous and Polarizing Effects of Social Media. Really thoughtful. Not a Facebook is bad because Facebook kind of book, but like how the motivations of social media apps and how they're constructed leads to rewarding behavior, human behavior and human weakness that leads us down some very dark alleys. Uh, as the, I believe the back cover says, nobody meant for Facebook to facilitate a genocide or for Twitter to be used to harass women or for YouTube to radicalize young men. But all those things happen. Nobody meant for it to happen. And why and what might be a path out of that? It's a, it's a, a good book by a really good writer. So I'll just throw a plug in, book plug there. I, I, I just, it's a good book. Social Warming, check it out if you want to read more about why we are where we are. I want to talk about um, something a little more fun. Maybe. I mean, I thought it was fun, which was this announcement that Microsoft <laughs> is going to take uh, its PCs and uh, and put them in the cloud and call it Windows 365 and let anybody on an iPad like Harry's iPad Yay. or or on a Mac on an, on like my M1 Mac that probably is never going to emulate uh, Windows particularly well and Microsoft just said you know what starting uh, soon for businesses they, they'll be able to pay for Windows 365 and you just get a window that has a PC in it and you don't have the PC. The PC is ma a magic PC that lives in a cloud somewhere as, as they do. That's where PCs come from. And I just, I got a kick out of this because this feels so n new Microsoft to me where they're like, yeah, you want a window that is a PC? We got that for you. Whatever, put it on your <laughs> iPad. I, uh, you know, Harry, you spent a lot of time at PC World. Uh, what was your reaction to this story? I mean, it's, it sounds really cool. It's not a technological breakthrough as far as I know. There's, there's, it's using their old game technology, yeah. game streaming technology. Uh, <laughs> some of us remember something called OnLive, which was a game streaming service from more than 10 years ago, which briefly had something called OnLive Desktop, which was very similar to this. So it was a way to run Windows on mobile devices in the cloud. And even before that, a company called Citrix, which has been around for decades, was about, um, you know, putting computers on a server and letting people get access to them on demand. So um, it's not a technological breakthrough, but the fact Microsoft is doing this is great. <laughs> um, I'm probably in the same situation as a lot of people in, in that I still have an, an Intel-based Mac, and I virtualize Windows occasionally. 
and I'm a, a little intimidated by the idea of M1 just because right now there's not a clear route to running Windows, and um, it sounds like uh, what Microsoft is doing might be all the Windows they need. Right, uh, and it would work on your iPad, too. It would work well. On, and the other cool thing is it's a Windows machine that spans all your devices, so you can run it from a Windows PC, you can run it from a Mac, you can run it from an iPad. It, it's the same machine no matter where you use it. It's a little unclear what the pricing is going to be like, and, and uh, this is for, for, for businesses. But At least they, for now. But they say it's for businesses as small as a one-person business. So, yeah, I, which suggests I resemble that remark. Yeah. Which suggests it might be fairly accessible. Um, I think some consumers would like to do this, too, and I'm hoping that um, the next step after this initial version is something that is at a price point and, and a level of uh, ease of use that makes sense for almost anybody. I'd certainly be a customer for this, uh, for yeah. sure. I just like the idea of Microsoft saying, hey, you don't want to buy a PC, it's fine. You can still just run Windows uh, in your web browser, it's fine. Like, just for Microsoft to say that, that's something. And it is kind of meaningful that they're doing this now. Um, they could have done it before, and, and they did not. And I'm hoping it's because they're comfortable that it, it works well enough. Um, if you have a really long memory, uh, you, uh, which Jason does, you'll, you'll remember Virtual PC, which was a Microsoft product for running Windows on a Mac before the, before the days of Intel Macs. So uh, Microsoft does have a longstanding interest in helping people on different devices use Windows, and this is sort of the ultimate expression of that idea. Because yeah. if this works, then you don't have to worry about emulation or virtualization anymore. This, this should work on any device forever, which, which is not true of, of things like uh, virtualization and Intel-based Macs. That, that was sort of ultimately a dead end, and I think people have been aware it would probably go away at some point. Uh, yeah, I, just having a, a Windows PC around in this way, instead of having to worry about some of these other methods of doing it, even a hard, uh, fast Mac user like me, I was really enthusiastic about this because it's just like, oh, so a Windows PC can just be another tool in the toolbox. I think that's pretty great. Andy, Rose, any thoughts about that? You excited about it? I mean, I looked at this and my immediate thought was, wait, didn't Amazon already do this? <laughs> they did. Uh, they did. And, and they did. Amazon Workspaces, $25 a month for a one virtual CPU, two gigabytes of memory, Windows machine uh, in North Virginia by the looks of it. $33 a month in the U.S. So uh, Microsoft have to at least be equivalent to or cheaper than that pricing um, for it to be, you know, better um, for people. This also has an educational discount. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I had a Windows machine at my last uh, day job. It was a virtual Windows server, which I just used as a Windows computer for the three things that I needed a Windows computer for, and that was it, um, because I could get into it from anywhere. And it was also my backup machine if and when things went horribly, horribly wrong. Um, I can see a lot of people having a use case for this. I personally don't think I would need it. I have a Windows machine running down there-ish. Um, it's got some hard drives plugged into it and is doing some stuff and is a gaming machine if slash when I want to play games. I don't think virtual Windows is going to be great for games. But uh, yeah, I'm sure a lot of people will want this. Um, and it'll also be great for those people maybe on Chromebooks who uh, need a more powerful machine and didn't realize it when they bought it and now they can uh, rent one. The Amazon implementation is pretty cumbersome and not a lot of fun to set up, I can say, after having tried to set it up. And so I think Microsoft does have lots of opportunity to make this sort of like, you know, click, 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 put in a credit card information and bang, you have a Windows computer. Yeah, and they have a platform owner. Andy, are you excited? You, Very. You, like, oh boy, yeah. uh, I, Windows, yay! 
Well, no, it's it's a great idea, uh, and uh, I, I have a uh, I have an account on a, a similar service called Shadow uh, that it's a it's it's basic purpose is to allow you to essentially have a Windows gaming PC remotely, and yes, it's great because you can you can play it on you can use it on your on your iPad. I mean, the, I, I had such a smile on my face, uh, Harry, when you were demonstrating Windows three point one because I had like Windows ten just full screen on my iPad, you know, with the keyboard, with the trackpad, uh, and being able to like install like the Windows version of Scrivener, like the full desktop version of Chrome, uh, because you, know, you don't you don't need a floppy, you don't need a disk or for anything. You, you install everything over the over the network anyway, uh, and it, it's sprightly. It is fast enough to run games if you want to do that, and it is a way to to say that look, I don't have a I don't have a, enough of a need for a Windows PC to spend a thousand dollars, even eight hundred dollars, and have this extra piece of kit. I just have this. I have this project that I'm working with the, these other people on, and it's a window shop, so I need to have access to Windows for two or three months to work on this. And that's actually one of the use cases, big use cases that uh, Microsoft was mentioning about this, that if you've got a temp worker in or if you got you have to add more people in on a project, you don't have to uh, add more hardware to your loadout, nor do you have to like ship laptops and ship desktops out to people. You simply give them a link that they, now, they do, then click on, which logs them into a fully configured PC that has all the software they need, all the files they need, all the access to uh, other servers that they uh, servers that they need, and when they're done, you can just simply take them off that server and they're and they're good to go. Uh, I I do hope that it's something that uh, becomes more like Shadow PC, where basically anybody can get in on this and do this uh, if they decide that they again want access to Windows. Uh, I could it, I don't I'm not sure if it makes sense to spend for me to spend three hundred sixty dollars a year. Uh, for access to actually a pretty good middle of the road PC in terms of uh, RAM, in terms of processors, in terms of graphics, uh, graphics card, and whatever. Uh, but nonetheless, it's a, it really does patch a lot of holes for a lot of people. Uh, I did see that uh, some other people were reporting that uh, uh, that Microsoft's product was going to be about thirty two dollars per seat. So it's not as though people are going to be saving any money with this. But the problem uh, the problem with these services is that you have to make sure that it, it's you can't make it into a Ponzi scheme. You have have to have the, the the processing power for every single user who signs up for this. So if this becomes popular and now you've got like eight million users, suddenly you've got to have enough CPU power uh, to, to to serve them all. Which is why on a lot of these services like Shadow, sometimes it will take you you, you sign up and it'll take you like two or three months before they will give you an account because they just need to add capacity or, or wait for somebody to cancel their account before they can let you in. But it, it is it really is a terrific idea and really does underscore. Uh, the 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 really complicated relationship that Microsoft keeps having with their uh, with the PC hardware community, where if now if they're at the point where look we don't care we don't care if you're running Windows on Air so long as you're running it on, running Windows you know, to hell with Dell to hell with HP to hell with Lenovo or whoever they are these days uh, just you know, give us thirty bucks a month we're good and as long as we can flex our our, our cloud our cloud performance uh, to to other contractors that just helps us out quite a bit. Thank Thank you very much. It feels like the ultimate example of Satya Nadella's Microsoft versus Steve Ballmer's yeah. Microsoft is Satya Nadella. He's a cloud guy. Yep. And he's Services. like, you know, Windows is important, but Windows can be in the cloud and that's just fine. It's it, it, it just and again, as te- as Harry pointed out, technically, this is not 
like it's not something that Amazon and all sorts of other companies have been able to do before, putting a PC, uh, making it available provision to you, doing screen share. Like, there's nothing groundbreaking here except that it's literally from Microsoft. And we know <laughs> the power. Like, how many times have we heard that story, which is like, well, yeah, Microsoft's got a version of this, but, it, you know, it's not Slack. It's Microsoft Teams. And everybody <laughs> who's got a Microsoft relationship in a company somewhere is like, what, what, what? Microsoft did it? Well, it's from Microsoft. <laughs> We're just going to do it. Like, the weight of Microsoft as Microsoft as being in businesses, as being the platform owner, saying, yeah, this is totally legit, and in fact, we will sell you one of those, rent you one of those PCs, too, I just it it's a very different Microsoft than the one that maybe we all grew up with. And I think it's really cool because I think it I, I love it when Microsoft says, you know, when you want to use Windows, use Windows. We don't care where you are, just use Windows. We are happy to charge you to use Windows wherever you are. Love it. <laughs> um I have a really uh one more story before we take a break, uh which is about uh Steam and the new Steam Deck. I don't know if you've seen this or not. Uh, a lot of people tried to make pre-orders. Some people succeeded. Some people failed. Um, those of you who are video streamers or, or Rosemary, it's not the new Stream Deck from Elgato, although there is one that was announced the same day. It's the Steam Deck, which looks kind of like a really big Nintendo Switch, but it's actually a Linux PC, and it's got SteamOS on it with steam's store and it will play games it's got a a couple different windows api emulation layers so that you can take uh, games that are built for windows that are on the steam store and they will just work now you know this probably hasn't shipped how how just will they work it's always the question with (laughs) pre-announced products but people uh in my timeline on twitter were super excited about this because the idea that you can take steam games pc games and get something that you know, if you squint a little bit, is kind of like a Nintendo Switch, and you can, and Steam, uh, the Steam Deck is supposed to be what, four hours, three hours. It depends on what you're playing. I think they said you play Portal Two, you can play it for like six hours on the on the Steam Deck. <laughs> uh, so on one level, again, is this new technology? Mm, but it's an it's a really interesting package coming from essentially a platform owner in a way, uh, because the Steam Store is so popular. So I, I, I was uh, very confused that it wasn't a stream deck, but also very impressed with this announcement. And uh, well, as I was laying on the beach, because that's where I was when this happened again, just <laughs> mentioning that for no reason. Uh, so uh, anybody have some thoughts about, uh, about the, the not a switch? It's fun to see this renaissance in mobile gaming hardware, because some years ago, a lot of people were very quick to declare it dead based on the fact that smartphones and tablets were really catching on for gaming. And uh, they told companies like Nintendo, don't, don't even bother to build new uh, gaming hardware, mobile, mobile hardware. It's pointless. And thank heavens, Nintendo ignored that advice and came out with the Switch, which is uh, one of their biggest phenomenons ever. And it's fun to see both, both things like um, the Steam Deck, but also uh, kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum, there's Playdate, which is also right? a new yeah. mobile g- gaming platform, uh, which you are not going to run any of your AAA uh, <laughs> first-person shooters on. It's something radically different, but I feel like it, it's a fun era when um, these uh, companies you would never would have expected to do gaming hardware are doing it and at least have a fighting chance at succeeding at it. And I think we have Nintendo to thank for, for showing that um, 
that mobile gaming hardware can thrive in an era when people are, are carrying uh, smartphones around in their pockets. And Steam really, I mean, Steam feels like a platform. I know it's it's running on Windows PCs and it's running on Macs and it's running on Linux. But when you see it like this, this is a this is a platform owner move. This is like really what it's about is Steam. That's the important part here. They have this built-in, extremely large audience, and even if a, a small percentage of those people are excited about this, assuming it's good, it has right. a chance of being really successful. Yeah. I, I kind of have to wonder if they're how, how much money they're making on these game decks, or if they're actually selling them at break even. Because so long as it gets people in the keeps them in the casino, yeah. keeps them keeps them playing, keeps them paying, that doesn't necessarily have to be a big earner for them. And the fact that I mean, when I when I when this news started uh, started to spread. I was shocked to find out that it was $399 at the entry level, and even the really good ones aren't that much more expensive. In a world where similar gaming PCs, handheld gaming PCs in the same form factor, they are priced almost at the level of a gaming laptop. So they've made a super attractive product. It's a product that uh, the gaming community, thanks to Nintendo, is, has already been very, very well trained to use and embrace. They didn't appear to screw anything up in the design of the thing because it's essentially they said, let's write, let's make a PC that run that runs Steam really, really well, but we're not going to just out of spite uh, make it impossible for you to connect a keyboard to it, uh, connect it to a screen, connect other controllers to it. We're not going to limit what it can do. We just want to make this the most attractive product as possible. And that really does make you think that their 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 game here is to make sure that take take people who are already very very happy uh, 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 steam customers and make them like slobberingly devoted steam customers or steam customers that are uh, that are now more likely to buy games because they're not uh, not locked down as they as they might have been and they get to be in this more much more immersive sort of uh, sort of area i i mean i have to say that I, even i i i i regain control of my senses within seconds but i it really did trigger my Three hundred ninety nine dollars. Gotta buy it. Gotta buy it. I know. It's like I have three hundred ninety nine dollars. It's like I can I can write about it and I can. It's almost like it's I'm getting it for free, aren't I? They said, Oh yeah, I'll put it on the business credit card. It'll be fine. You don't play. You don't play any games whatsoever. I I already let you talk me into ordering a play date when that comes that that goes on pre order. Don't push your luck, son. (laughs) Rose, what do you think? You're gonna get one. No, I'm considering a Retroid Pocket 2, which is $80 um, and um, won't lock me into the Steam system. I don't have enough Steam games for it to be worth it. Uh, I I buy games on good old games and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm not sure. I'm not the target market. I'm the kind of person who owns a Nintendo Switch and plays it really intensely for a week and then ignores it for two and a half months and then comes back to it. <laughs> Me too. So uh, I don't think the Steam Deck is, is what I was looking for. And um, A Stream yeah, Deck is I, what you were looking stream for. Stream Deck, though, so. yes. Uh, though that said, I, I don't need the new one. My, my 32 button one is perfect. I think there, somebody could make a really great game for that Stream Deck. It's got so many buttons. You could do like... I mean, James Thompson, maybe? Pipe I don't know. Dream or, or Lights <laughs> Off. Or, I mean, there's there you could do a game for that many buttons, probably. Yes, James Thompson will probably do it because why, why not? Right after he builds a calculator for it. Yeah. That, that's where it all starts. Okay, uh, we got more to talk about, including some, uh, some fun and interesting stuff yet to come, believe it or not. But first, we've got to go back to the disembodied pre-taped voice of Hawaii vacationer, Leo Laporte. Can I just interrupt for one moment? I'm sorry, we'll get right back to the show, but uh, thank you, Jason, for filling in for me. 
Uh, when I, you know, I'm in Hawaii and I'm using Mint Mobile, I have to say, it is the mobile wireless service you want. And I know, you know, when I tell you it's 15 bucks a month, you're going to say, I don't believe it. I mean, we've been for years, big wireless providers have been um, lying to us, right? Fine print contracts. There's always a catch, you know. So when I heard about Mint Mobile's premium wireless service starting at 15 bucks a month, I thought, you know, oh, there's a catch here, right? But I've been using their service now for more than a year. And I got to tell you, not only is it real, it makes sense. Their secret sauce is they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. No retail stores, no crazy overhead costs. The savings are get passed down to you. And there's no mystery fees. There's nothing. It's just sweet savings direct to you. Now, there are all sorts of different plans, including a uh, no data cap plan, but I, you should check it out. I think the best thing to do is start off with their introductory offer, $15 a month. That includes, as do all their plans, by the way, unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data on the nation's largest 5G network. You can bring your own phone if you want. They'll send you a SIM, no cost. If you go to the Mint Mobile site, you can enter in the IMEI number for the phone and it'll tell you whether it works. Basically, it'll work with any phone that works with T-Mobile or GSM networks. Um, you know, they're LTE. Uh, it runs on T-Mobile. So if your phone works with T-Mobile, it'll work just fine with Mint Mobile. But you save so much money. And of course, if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their seven-day money-back guarantee. So again, just to recap... Mint Mobile, mintmobile.com slash twit. You get premium wireless service that's unlimited nationwide talk and text plus high-speed data, just 15 bucks a month. And they'll ship you the plan to your door at no charge. Most other companies charge you for the SIMs. They don't even charge you for the SIM. Go to mintmobile.com slash twit. Bring your own phone. Buy one from Mint Mobile. I got an iPhone SE from them. Very affordable. The whole package total, $30 a month phone plus Data plus phone, unlimited text and talk. I mean, it, it's such a good deal. Cut your wireless bill down to 15 bucks a month. Mintmobile.com slash twit. 15 bucks a month. It's not made up. There's no catch. That's it. Mintmobile.com slash twit. Thank you so much for supporting This Week in Tech. And now back to the foxy Jason Snell. Jason. Oh, <laughs> Ooh, Leo, thank you so much. Boy, that fist bump that we did in Hawaii now has extra meaning. Uh, I am Jason Snell. I'm here with Harry McCracken, Andy Anatko, and Rosemary Orchard. Still talking about tech. Lots of stuff going on. My old pal Heather Kelly, who used to work with me at Macworld, is now a tech reporter for the Washington Post. And she had a story this week that I thought was really good. This could be filed away as the... Uh, one of those bummer stories about how everybody's got your information and everybody, all your privacy is, is vanquished. But I feel like there's something inspirational about this as well, that once you're armed with this knowledge, you can do the right thing. The story is called Lots of Apps Use Your Personal Contacts. Few will tell you what they do with them. And this is just, it's a little quirk. If you've ever been in your uh, in your smartphone and you launched an app and it said, I would like to look at your contacts, you might be like, oh, Sure. But what can happen in those scenarios is that the apps then have access to your entire contact library. There's a philosophical discussion to be had, by the way, about whether you really should even be allowed to grant access to contacts. Do your friends' phone numbers belong to you? Do you have the right to actually give that information to whoever wants it? You sign up for Clubhouse and Clubhouse says, great, send me all your contacts. Do you want to do that? 
Um, but also, what happens then? They get siphoned off. They get taken somewhere else. Do they get compared to other people? Are there social uh, maps being built behind the scenes against your knowledge about who knows who? Some horror stories in here about therapists who keep their patients' information in their phones, and then they're uploaded to a site like Venmo where they can be, where where it's a public viewing of contacts, and all of a sudden they've disclosed their patients' names in public, which is a no-no. Um, and, and again, we could make this about, oh, they're out to get your information, because maybe they are. Some of them probably are. But what I like about this story is I think forewarned is forearmed. Uh, Android and iOS, I believe, give you some features, some power to say, no, I don't want to share my contacts with this app. I refuse. And then you can decide, do you want to do that or do you not want to do that? And uh, I just, I really like that idea because I think the problem here is in part that we don't think about it. When we say yes, we're not thinking, I'm disclosing everybody I know. And without them saying it's okay, I've just handed their phone number and their address and who knows what else in the notes field to who knows who. So I thought this story was really, really great. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, I, I open it up for discussion. That's a terrible host thing to do. Leo is going to revoke this, but like, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 when I signed up for clubhouse, I didn't, I I, I didn't want to share my contacts and it was really kind of creepy to say like, I don't even think I have the right to share other people's phone numbers with any service that I sign into. It was yeah. a great story. And one of the troubling things about it was that Heather asked, a bunch of big companies, what they're doing with the contacts they get from users. And in some cases, some of those companies wouldn't tell her. Uh, there were relatively few, it seemed, that, that were really specific about how they're using contacts. Um, I think one thing that is a little encouraging is that as this becomes more public, both Apple and Google really do have a lot of opportunity to give us even more control. Uh, right. Apple recently did a new photo feature where you can, instead of sharing your entire photo library, you can sp- pick specific photos to share. Right. And uh, I look at that and I think, well, yeah, you should do that for every single bit of data sharing on that device. Like with location on Apple, uh, you can give um, an app just a vague idea of where you are because right. most, most apps don't need to know precisely where you are. And it, it really feels like um, it would not be surprising if part of the follow-up to Heather's story is the... Um, the companies that control the platforms, giving us a lot more power. And unlike some stuff out there, this does seem to be an instance where um, there's some stuff that can be done about it. Uh, one of the challenges, which is pointed out in the story, is once a company has access to your contacts, you can't yank them back. Right. Uh, they, they have them pretty much forever. And uh, so there may not be that much you can do about what you've shown in the past. But, but moving forward, I think there is good opportunity to, uh, to give us a lot more control. Yeah, and it's and it's not like it's about uh, you know, people will wind up on a mailing list. It really is about uh, the, the part of the job of, of these marketers is to solve for X, 
that if you have uh, if you have uh, if if the information that they're collecting is anonymized, that's great. But if you have enough samples of anonymized data uh, and enough, you can calculate with the, for the missing variables. And a list like this is a very very powerful tool. It also brings to mind that one of the most valuable single pieces of information that uh, data collectors can get is your cell phone number because it uniquely identifies you. It follows you from one place to another. So you might have moved three times in the past five or six years, but you probably still have the same cell number. And this is if they can attach uh, unknown anonymized subject a four four one 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 four four b with oh well I know that his his cell phone number is eight one eight four four one two two one one wow now you've pretty much that that's pretty much the master key that unlocks so much other stuff so yeah it's 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 terrible that we that we sometimes don't pause as we we're so eager to get to the the part of the app that lets us give ourselves big eyes and a propeller on our nose that we just blow past the oh yeah by all by all means uh, take a look at all my contacts i'm sure i'm going to want to share some of these new animations with my friends of mine well no it's not about sharing things with friends of yours it really is collecting information and trying to make life a little bit more tragic for all for all of us everywhere this is the story about venmo by the way uh disclosing joe biden's venmo account because he sent venmo uh he's used venmo to send send money to his grandkids and they were able to backtrack from there and find joe biden's entire venmo friend list which (laughs) oh boy grandpa joe uh sent me some money for for ice cream thanks grandpa joe but still the point is they added an opt-out but if you don't know that your data is there you don't know to opt out so it's not great it's not great it's not the end of the world but it's not great you should be aware that you're giving this stuff away these things should be opt-in, not opt-out, to be very clear. They, they always have to be opt-out rather than opt-in. And secondly, what the heck are they going to do with something like GDPR, which I'm aware doesn't affect Venmo because they don't operate in the European economic area, but California data laws definitely affect Venmo. If I tell them I need you to delete all of my personal identifying information, are they going to actually do that? Because it seems like they probably wouldn't. Because, oh, but that's not related to your account. That's related to Jason Snell's account or Joe Biden's account or whatever. No, it's my personal information. I don't want it out there. Um, Yeah, I I personally think this is a big issue and they should never be collecting this information. Um, And yeah, it's 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 one of those things. I do wish Apple was a little bit better, specifically about the photo sharing. Um, I, I had an issue when it first came out where I said, oh, no, this app hasn't allowed access to any photos. But then it couldn't access the camera. Now, I'm pretty certain that was because I was on a beta at the time. And we all know betas break things. Um, but yeah, it would be good if this was a little more easily tweakable. Um, so you could say, hey, maybe it can access this album of photos or it can only access photos that I take within the app. But why does my toothbrush app need access to my location? They say it's so that they can only sync my toothbrush but when I'm at home. Well, guess what? I haven't been anywhere in 18 months, so I'm always at home. Um, so uh, yeah, apparently they want to know that. Well, Phillips, thank you very much, but you're not getting my location. Yeah, and and we've had a lot of conversations about location data, right? Like location data and and photos a little bit. Um, but that's what struck me about this story is is contacts. Maybe people don't think about them. So, just I'm saying to everybody who is listening now, think about it the next time, or go into your privacy settings and see what services you've granted access to your contacts. Because when you're doing that, it's not just your like your basic information. It can potentially be your entire contacts database, and that's probably. I mean, 
having restrictions is good, but you do sort of feel like they're patching an initial hole instead of revisiting that feature and saying, actually, by default, everything should be completely locked down. And then we should give data very in very limited ways beyond that. And I'm actually surprised that um, that they haven't done more in that way, because quite honestly, uh, you shouldn't be able to do a couple of taps and send all of the phone numbers of everybody, you know, to anyone yeah. that's uh that's that's a bad idea. It's, right. it's a bad idea. And the odd thing is, it's not like this is really that much of a revelation because Path, many years ago, got in trouble for yep. what they did with the address books, and uh, uh, they built the whole social graph, right? Yeah. So there is an alternate universe where Apple and Google really screwed, um, put the screws on some of the stuff a lot earlier than than they have. And I'm not sure why they didn't, because it, it seems fairly obvious in a lot of ways. It's just that people don't think about it. Well, um, we've got more to talk about, but uh, this is a whole network with shows that people like Rosemary Orchard and Andy Anako are on every week. And great stuff happens here every week. Magical stuff, even when Leo's in Hawaii, quite frankly. So we should take a look at what great stuff happened this week at Twit. Because I don't really like eating or food in general, and so it, it almost becomes... Wait, 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 wait. I'm sorry. So let's step back what? for a second. I'm a weirdo. You don't like food? I, yeah. If you I could like go... eating? Yeah, if I could go without eating, I would. I got to tell you, so that's actually pretty impressive, and you could save a lot of money. <laughs> Previously on Twit, this week in Enterprise Tech. Now, we've been talking about how the FCC speed standards are just too darn slow. Object Pie did absolutely freaking <laughs> nothing. <laughs> Other than mess up the industry, slow things down, and make America wholly unprepared for a pandemic. iOS Today. Coming up on iOS Today, Rosemary Orchard and I cover some apps that will leave you puzzled. Yes, that's right. We're doing puzzle games. All about Android. And that the flagship killer, so-called, has been caught cheating. Not a good look, my friend. Naughty, naughty. OnePlus included a blacklist of popular apps from the Play Store, all of which are prevented from taking full advantage of the phone's power. It ends up just becoming a really unfortunate headline. Tech News Weekly. Twitter has made the decision to shut down fleets. I'm not surprised based on what I've seen in terms of usage of the platform. I did give fleets a try. It just it just didn't quite feel right. Send out a fleet if you want to. It is definitely going away. Twit. Subscribe, download, tell a friend while you're at it. Man, that <laughs> that shot of Micah Sargent with Mary Jo Foley and Paul Therott surrounding him. I feel really bad for the guy who's like, you're hosting Windows Weekly this week. Go. Uh, don't, whatever you do, don't tell him that you don't like food. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff in there. And we got, we got Rosemary Orchard in there being puzzled with, with Micah. That was, that's really great. Lots of good stuff here at Twit. Um, all right. If you love, okay. Hi, Tesla fans. Hi. I like Teslas. They're great. Um, <laughs> Full self-driving beta V9 came out. Um, eh, wasn't that great? <laughs> like, there are some great YouTube videos showing that it still has problems with un- making unprotected left turns and driving in San Francisco and things like that. Uh, but it's out. Elon Musk uh, said it was going to be out for a very long time, and then it, it, it did come out. Um, I, I, I have to be honest. Um, 
at some point I lost faith in the entire full self-driving thing. There was a there was a point several years ago where I thought, oh yeah, these computers are smart. These these computer wizards, they're they're brilliant. They're going to figure it out. And now when I see Tesla, which is a company that has a pretty impressive track record in a lot of areas, um, struggle mightily to release new versions of this thing that they insist on calling full self-driving. Um, and I don't know. I've lost faith at this point. I, I feel like every uh, – there's a, another story this week. We heard that maybe the guy who helped squire the Apple Watch to completion, Kevin Lynch, has been moved from that to Apple's uh, car project, which I'm like, oh, Apple car, that's interesting. And then the recap is Apple's full self-driving car. And I thought, oh, no, no. No, that's that's never going to happen. So, uh, friends around me, uh, am I wrong? Have you uh, can you reinstill the faith in in self driving cars, or are you all just like finally Jason figured it out? It's not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was it was so much fun three or four years ago when everybody was starting up a self driving car company, and like it, it was it was like the Bitcoin of the early 2010s, <laughs> and we all thought that we we're going to be at self driving cars and hover cars by now, uh, and it, see, but it's it's this is the kind of, kind of technology where uh, every getting halfway there from where you are is always easy, but it gets harder every time you do it. So if we go from zero, it's easy to get like it ha- get, get self-driving software halfway there. The next time you want to get it to 75% there and it's twice as hard. The next time you want to get it, have that again to the, to the finish line and it's twice as hard. And you will, because of Zeno's paradox, you will kind of uh, never get there. And meanwhile, you get these the expectations being raised by, uh, by Tesla by calling it autopilot. When I mean, secret. If you, if you haven't figured this out yet, uh, the, 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 there's a standard for uh, for self-driving car technology: one through five. One being the lowest, five being what we all imagine to be self-driving car. It's as defined as you don't need to have someone in the driver's seat. You don't even have to have a, a steering wheel or pedals, and it will. And you can use it in every situation, no matter what. Uh, Tesla, uh, the uh, uh, Waymo's cars are at level. four. I think right now, meaning that there are situations they're running in test test situations in kind of a 50 square mile area in suburban Phoenix, Arizona, plus Mountain View, plus uh, San Francisco. Uh, And even there, even there in a situation where if it's raining, that's a situation where, no, they're not comfortable uh, having self-driving cars. If you ask for a Waymo taxi in, in Phoenix and it's raining, you will, your, your Waymo taxi will have someone behind the wheel to make sure that things are working. But they're calling this autopilot. And again, they're at level two, meaning that you have to have a human being not only sitting there behind the wheel with the feet on the pedals, but also paying as close attention to the driving process as they would had they if they were actually driving this car. And they want to call it autopilot, and they want to start charging $200 a month for this malarkey. They're nowhere near ready, and we're not even uh, we're not even at a place where we can start to regulate 
uh, self-driving cars yet. We're not the technology is not mature enough that we can start asking governments. Okay, well, we want to start putting uh, autonomous vehicles on public roads. How what what do what rules are we going to have to uh, comply with in order to make that happen? We've not we just don't have the data yet to make that happen. Waymo's most successful by far, and but they're still doing most of their miles in simulation rather than on the road. So yeah, I mean, I I think it's gonna I think it's gonna happen, but it's gonna have to be that thing where it's just slow incremental changes and suddenly we find that we might be at an airport and the instead of having a, 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 a like a, a, a monorail sort of thing that takes you from the terminals to the parking area maybe we will have like autonomous vehicles that we can hail that will take us to where our, where our uh, rental car is maybe we will be in a situation where if we're on a college campus we can have a hail riding service where on the campus the, the car is going to drive automatically but it's going to be a long long time before we get into that sort of uh, uh, dreamscape where uh, we get to we call an Uber and it's a self-driving Uber and it takes me from uh, the suburbs all the way into a meeting in the city uh, without my screaming for my life and texting last messages to loved ones. Now, I, uh, they've probably already sent their emails, but I, I'm just going to clarify something for all of those uh, the, the Tesla fans out there. There are actually two levels of driving here, which is probably part of the the problem with the marketing is there's autopilot and there's full self driving and autopilot is actually the smart cruise control feature. And I've used that and I think it's actually pretty nice and that they pretty did a pretty good job, but it's literally just a smart cruise control when you're on the freeway. And then full self driving is when you like start in your driveway and say, take me somewhere. And it stops at the stop signs and it makes all the turns. And that's the stuff that is, uh, guess what? A lot harder to do. And, uh, and again, I feel like uh, Tesla is a really nice product and there's yet there's something about the and it comes from Elon Musk. It is the <laughs> overpromise under deliver ethos of the whole thing that drives me crazy because like they yeah. have done some really great engineering. But when everything is late and everything is overpromised and everything is misnamed to make it seem more impressive than it is, you start to get kind of down on what the company is doing, even though it's doing, and this goes, honestly, this goes for SpaceX too. It is endemic to <laughs> Elon Musk companies that they do amazing things, but only in the context of having overpromised. Um, so yeah. Yeah. And then, and the fact that the Apple car, who knows for sure, but that the Apple car project is still being described similarly as an autonomous vehicle. Um, I can see Apple doing a smart car of some sort, but it's that last um, I can't believe I just walked into that at the last mile that I don't <laughs> yep. believe. I just, I just, that's, a, that's the really hard part is can you really just not have anybody paying attention or behind the wheel? And that, that we have not had enough evidence of, I think, yet. Yeah. The videos on YouTube of people using the beta of, uh, the full self driving are really a little scary. Actually, the idea that people are running beta software. Yeah, that tries geez. to do this at all on real roads uh-huh. is a little unnerving. But I don't they... run beta software on my iPad, man. <laughs> what? I'm not going to be, be near, near near oceans and lakes and, and cliffs and be running beta software in my car. What the hell <laughs> well, is wrong say, with people? Apparently, most of the people who have access to this beta are Tesla employees uh, at this point. So it's <laughs> not vast numbers of people. But things like left-hand turns that are really hard, even if you're just a human being. Uh, are even harder for a car, and it is a little creepy to see people uh, try to entrust their their Tesla to make a left-hand turn, and it just utterly fail to do so in a safe fashion. Yeah, it's just, 
It just isn't there. And and I think it's okay that it's not there. I think the problem yeah. is that you have uh, the head of the company talking about how, oh, no, no, like any day now, full self-driving is coming. And, uh, you know, just just be a little more humble about it. It's probably impossible for Elon to do that. But, like, Tesla's got some great stuff. It is building smart software. It has a lot of interesting sensors. But to go all the way to full self-driving, you are, put, you are putting the bar so high. And, yes, you watch these YouTube videos and uh, – they can't clear that bar and and that's because set the bar lower <laughs> set the bar lower it's the antithesis of the apple way of doing that which is a- apple and we, we may be years and years away from apple even acknowledging they're working on this problem yeah. and if they do ever ship it um it's likely to be in better shape than uh what right. tesla has done where they're they're experimenting or they'll only in, announce yeah. smart cruise control, essentially <laughs> autopilot and not full self-driving because they're like, eh, it's not good enough. Seems more likely. And people's lives are in the balance. That's the other thing is it's very unlikely that all of us running the iOS 15 beta are going to accidentally kill ourselves or other people while we do it. I mean, it's possible. It's Ooh, Anything maybe. is possible, but it's, it's a lot less likely than if that beta software is running on a car. Maybe that's why the Apple Watch has so much like fall detection stuff in it, so that the people that they do run over will be able to get <laughs> medical attention really, really quickly. Which is very thoughtful of them. It's very, very helpful. Yeah, very Tesla helpful. just starts giving an Apple Watch to everybody just in case one of their cars hits them. Yeah. No, I recently got a new car and it's got smart stuff in it. So it can detect like road signs to tell you what speed you should be driving and things like that. And it can also detect the white lines on the road and the edge of the road. If you're on a motorway or freeway for Americans, um, it can't do it on any normal road, as far as I can tell, because it literally just doesn't recognize, you know, the faded white lines in the middle of the road, because guess what? Companies don't pay enough money to actually maintain roads around here. Um, And I'm sure everywhere has that kind of problem. It's like, okay, my car is a Renault. It doesn't have necessarily all the money behind it that Tesla's got. But Dyson poured, what was it, $600 into building an electric vehicle? And that didn't pan out. So I'm wondering how much is this, uh, you know, autonomous electric self-driving car uh, costing Apple? And, uh, you know, is it ever going to see the light of day? Well, they're good for it, right? They've got got money, enough money under their pillow to uh, pay for it a couple times over probably. But yeah, I do wonder sometimes having Kevin Lynch move into Apple car territory is a real interesting sign though because he he is perceived at least to be the guy who got the Apple Watch over the finish line and if he's the closer um what does that mean does that mean it's in disarray and they're desperate need of help or does it mean that they're kind of closing on on having a product or does it mean that Kevin Lynch is really bored of Apple Watch and wants to do yeah, something different yeah. I don't know what we're all reading the Apple tea leaves the kremlinology that goes on but it is an interesting move because his last one was apple's last major product new product which is the apple watch it is it is really weird uh, because i I, i'll be completely honest i have no clue what apple is up to with the with self-driving cars i i have no idea i can't i I mean if you could give me a list of a hundred possibilities and i would nod at each one of them saying i guess sure that makes sense uh but the thing that keeps that, that keeps me interested is knowing the level of talent they keep bringing into this project. That that's the slide deck they keep showing people say, okay, well, I know that you are incredibly successful in the field of auto design, and you have one of the most 
prestigious positions at one of the most prestigious auto companies in the world. But I'm going to show you this little I'm going to show you this little keynote deck in 22 minutes of your time. And at the end of that time, they're saying, you know what, I'm going to quit my job and start working for Apple. That is one hell of a pitch deck. And so whatever it is that they're showing them, whatever plans or or, or whatever, uh, you know, do you want to keep you want to keep selling sugar water to kids or do you want to help change the world? It's definitely convincing people to, again, leave uh, leave positions of great success and great security and great renown and join this the, uh, this, the, this project that uh, I keep comparing it to like the Soviet Moonlander project, where at some point <laughs> the Soviets said, OK, uh, we're canceling the Moonlander project. <laughs> I know that you, 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 you and you have been doing nothing but training to be the first to, be, to walk on the moon. But not only are we canceling this project, we will never acknowledge this project actually existed. <laughs> so Good luck. With the, go, go, thanks for your past five or six years of service and good luck. That's what Apple could absolutely do if they simply decide that, nah, this was yeah, – actually, we, we were going to go ahead with the, with, the, with the Apple car project, but Tony has an idea for a really cool new watch band that really is going <laughs> to scratch that innovation itch for us for this year. So, so what you're saying is probably not the dental plan. Probably not the dental plan. I understand they have a really good health club uh, on sure. the ca- Apple campus. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Um, okay, we've got some more fun stories to talk about before we wrap up. Uh, but first, one last visit to the time-delayed <laughs> vacationer himself, Mr. Leo Laporte. One more, one more commercial. Let me just briefly mention Endava, E-N-D-A-V-A. Uh, they have a great podcast. I know you're going to like it. It's called Tech Reimagined. They just put out season two of tech reimagined here's how it works it brings together leading tech personalities industry experts i mean names you know guy kawasaki mary williams alex hunter brian mcbride tom gruber dave copland uh Inma martinez viola llewellyn and they talk about big technology and how it's changing our world guests and hosts talk about how Technology and its industries are impacting our everyday lives, how our relationship with technology is constantly being reimagined, hence the name Tech Reimagined. Uh, they they kind of focus on different areas. For instance, there's two episodes in the series uh, about insurance. Insurance Reimagined. The guests are Ann Norklet and Kevin Crawford. They talk about how, uh, you know, what IT and means to the insurance industry. It's actually fascinating. A lot of inside information. There's two episodes about AI, the role of AI reimagined with Boris Sergal and Radu Orgadon. Uh, and they talk about the regulations, the accountability, the expectations that arise when you use AI to solve complex problems. There's a lot of interesting uh, philosophical issues they also talk about. And I always find this fascinating, what the future holds for AI and people using it on a daily basis. If, you, if you're interested in shopping, who isn't? Parts one and two of our shopping experience reimagined really goes in depth into how tech is changing commerce. The guests, Thomas Beechin and Jeremy Mays, dive into some of the most significant shifts they've seen in consumer behavior over the last year. COVID changed a lot. It accelerated a lot of the change. Uh, Direct to consumer, much more popular. Uh, Buy online, pick up and store, again, took off. And how the shift to digital is pushing people and companies to reimagine the way we shop. What is the future of shopping? Find out with Tech Reimagined. And Dava has been doing this, of course. That's their business, 
reimagining the relationship between technology and people for years. Their podcast, Tech Reimagined, explores this relationship on a deeper level with a look at the most recent experiences with technology and its experts. Learn more about how tech is becoming so much more in this world. It's constantly growing and changing. It's a podcast you will not want to miss. Subscribe and listen to Tech Reimagined. Just search for that, the podcast from Indava, from wherever you get your podcasts. We thank you, Indava, for supporting our podcast, and we invite everybody to try out theirs, Tech Reimagined. Now, back to Jason Snell and This Week in Tech, and I'll be back next week. Thanks, Jason, for filling in. Aloha. Means hello and goodbye. I don't know which one I'm saying to Leo there. Both. Maybe both. Maybe both. Why can't it be both? A few other fun stories for you before we wrap up today. Uh, this one, a little philosophical. Another uh, Andy and Notco original. Well, not the story, but the link that he sent to me. And it's such a good, fun, weird topic. There's a documentary called Roadrunner, which is about the uh, celebrity chef, Anthony Bourdain. Um, and he... Uh, he committed suicide, and the the it's sort of the people involved in his show and people who knew him uh, writing a, or doing a documentary about him, including dealing with the fact that he committed suicide. And it uses clips. He was in so many shows that it uses a lot of clips of his voice to tell the story. However, there were things that he had written that he never said that anyone can recall on tape. And so what the documentarians decided to do was use an AI voice training system trained on his previous recorded words to generate Anthony Bourdain's voice narrating portions of the documentary with words that he wrote but never said out loud. And this, now I've read some unflattering stories about this documentary saying that it's actually kind of weird and and uh, elides some of his personal history and that the more you see it, the more kind of questionable it is that it was even made. But I haven't seen it. I don't even know. I don't really want to talk about the documentary itself as much as this idea that Andy sent to me about, is it, like, it's his words, right? But he never said them out loud. So what is, and, and I'll grant you, three decades ago we had video of, uh, Fred Astaire dancing with a vacuum cleaner on a Super Bowl ad. So it's not as if this sort of thing hasn't happened before. But at this point, the technology exists uh, with AI. There's a company called Descript that makes a uh, an audio editing tool that if you feed it enough audio of a human being, it will let you type anything you want and you can get that person's voice to say it. And we've seen this before. Roger Ebert had a uh, Ebert-esque voice built for him that he decided he didn't want to use. And here we have a case where Anthony Bourdain cannot speak for himself. He's no longer with us. It sounds like perhaps some of the people closest to him were not consulted on this. And yet here's his voice that's being made to say things that he did write, but that he never actually said. It is a real weird 21st century ethical <laughs> conundrum. So An Andy, thank you for recommending this to me. Um, yeah. I, I feel like you have strong feelings about this. That's just my guess. Yeah, well, it's it, it just has so many different layers to it. Well, first of all, in the context of a documentary, it's unnecessary and it's really damaging because you, you yourself brought up that uh, Val Kil the Val Kilmer has a, has a documentary because of his throat cancer. He can't he, he his speech is very much compromised. So for a lot of the narration that's in quote his voice, he, the he and the filmmakers cast someone to represent his voice. Uh, Roger kind of sounds like him. 
but is not him. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Roger Ebert did the exact same thing uh, when his uh, memoir, uh, while he was alive, was produced into a movie. He chose a voice artist. Uh, he's actually he's actually also a voice artist who uh, does a lot of the uh, Empire uh, uh, Empire villains in the uh, in a lot of the Star Star Wars games. Uh, but he got to choose who's going to represent his voice. Uh, Anthony Bourdain did not have a say in this, as you say. But in it, in the context of a documentary. Um, when you find that one thing has been faked, it <laughs> ruins your it ruins your perceptions of everything else. This, this is my problem with uh, with Michael Moore documentaries that you will you you will watch it and then you'll say, "Wait a minute, that's totally not true." I know for a fact that's not true. And then, no matter how uh, positive or or, or uh, uh, humanist this whole, this whole story is, I can't trust anything that's being said in this documentary. So if they cho- if the filmmaker chose not to simply have somebody. Uh, not even necessarily sound alike, but someone who has a compatible voice read this email. I think it's a forty-second uh, email to a to a friend. It's, it really interferes with how you start to go with this. But now, but outside of a documentary, it really is very very interesting. Um, I'm sure that uh, the reason why Fred Astaire uh, was able to be uh, likeness was able to uh, have a, a vacuum cleaner in his hand dancing up and down the steps from uh, uh, one of his famous clips from I think it was from the Barclays of Broadway, but I, I could be wrong with that. Is because he was a big celebrity. He had really good lawyers, and part of his estate was he he made the decisions that well after I die is it okay to use my likeness and my and films of my movies in advertising? And he signed off on that. Maybe he didn't anticipate how it could be used, but he did think about it. He could have said no. He decided to say yes. So I think that now we're going to have this extra element where people are going to where uh, celebrities are going to have to are going to say, I do not give my uh, if I don't want my voice to be recreated, if I don't want my likeness to be recreated, then that then uh, then that's going to be uh, in their wills. But let's go into something a little bit more personal. This is I'm going to cut. I, I, I swear to God, I've got a shot clock in my head because this could be like All two right. hours of conversation between <laughs> the three of us. But. Uh, for the past couple of years, I've been thinking about how technology, um, how technology plays a role in the grieving process when we lose a loved one. That uh, we've all been to, we've all now been to funerals in which there is always that 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 little HDTV on the table that has a slideshow of all kinds of different pieces of video and 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 photos that were collected over the course of uh, this person's life and helps us to remember who they were but uh, imagine a little step in the future as you said we do have this technology where if you have enough samples of someone's voice you can't recreate that voice what if for certain people they decided that it would help them with their grieving process if they could have uh, the emails that that your your mom or your dad sent to you read in their voice with a synthetic voice that they create or even this is going to sound really creepy but again people grieve in their own ways what if you decided that i want to have uh, i i I don't want to have my my smart speaker speak in my my dead mother's voice but i want a voice that reminds me of my mother that maybe a voice that that maybe has grew up in the same neighborhood as my mother what does does that become the sort of technology where it is helpful and healing or is that just so creepy we want no part Part of that uh, forever and ever. These are questions that we're going to have to start asking ourselves. I mean, we we are in a we are in a society where it is part of our grieving tradition to have the body of a loved one on display for a couple of days in a funeral home. That in itself 
could seem pretty weird. It might seem less weird than you know my my favorite book. My uh, you know, my 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 dad read The Hobbit to me like as a, as a little kid when I used to go to go to bed. I want to hear my my father's voice reading The Hobbit to me from start to finish. That if technology like this could be used for something like that. Maybe it doesn't matter that the deceased person didn't get a choice in the matter because on some level they're no longer here. And because these products are not being used in a public fashion, maybe that's a situation in which we can sort of overlook the fact that we didn't get consent from the living. I will commend to everybody, by the way, the Black Mirror episode, Be Right Back, which is about a version of this, what Andy just described, and is... <laughs> Again, philosophically, there are lots of questions here about uh, what do you have the right to do? I think it's interesting, like, if Al Kilmer wanted an AI reconstruction of his voice to narrate his movie, yeah. because he's alive, he could choose that, and he chose not to. Anthony Bourdain doesn't get that choice, but you're, this is a 21st century choice that didn't exist before, that, that for all that Roger Ebert went through trying to find a synthetic voice based on all of his hours of audio. He wasn't satisfied with it. I suspect that today they could make a pretty immaculate Roger Ebert voice for him, but he isn't here anymore. And so we probably shouldn't do that, even though it would be great to hear him reading his essays because he's no longer here. I should say, I believe that the Bourdain estate did sign off on this, which, well, that doesn't mean I like it. That does mean something. But uh, an even more important fact is that the only reason we're discussing this at all is because a writer for The New Yorker named Helen Rosner saw the, was writing about the documentary and saw it and wondered to herself, why do they have audio of Anthony Bourdain reading his email? It's, uh-huh. it's really weird they would have that. So she, she asked them, and uh, Morgan Neville, the, uh, who's a really good documentarian who, who made this, uh, acknowledged that they did that in several instances, um, but he did not disclose it, and he seemed, I have to say, a little bit flippant in his response to her. He, he kind of said, there, there are other places where we did this, but you're not going to be able to tell what they are, <laughs> and, and maybe someday we, we can have this debate, but I'm not going to have a debate about the ethics. While I'm promoting my movie. Now. Yeah, uh, and that, his ex, his, Bourdain's ex-wife said that she didn't give permission, but she's probably not the one who's involved with the estate who's giving permission. Yeah. And that really bothers me. If, if it had started with... Uh, you know, a title saying some of some of Anthony Bourdain's dialogue in this was recreated. I think it would be a radically different situation than than right. what they painted themselves into. The disclosure by not being upfront yeah. about it. And that gets to Andy's point about um, trust of the information that you're seeing in a documentary. Even if you just put up a super title that said um, this is a, a reconstruction yes. of his voice uh, that you're hearing reading this. Uh, you might have a, the reaction of, this is amazing. We get to hear his voice reading his words. But instead, it's just a little bit weird. I'm, I'm not saying this is a scandal either. I just am saying that it is. it gives one pause about the capabilities that we have to do things like this. Yeah. And I think that's interesting. I mentioned Descript earlier. The idea with Descript is if you're working for a very popular, famous podcast, let's say This Week in Tech with Leo, you could get Leo... <laughs> to speak all the words into Descript that it wants. And then when Leo goes on vacation, he doesn't even have to pre-tape the ads. Or what if one ad changed after he already left? 
uh, then somebody here could retype that part and output it as audio, and it would sound like Leo said it. And that's why that product exists. So it's generally the idea is that it's with the approval of the person. It's like a very busy correspondent is not around, and you need one slight wording change in the piece before you lock it. Um, But still, when I first saw that feature, I could not believe it. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and since you brought it up, Andrew Mason actually put a blog, up a blog post on Friday addressing this exact thing uh, after a couple paragraphs said for what it's worth, here's our take. Unapproved voice cloning is a slippery slope. As soon as you get into a world where you're making subjective judgment calls about whether specific cases can be ethical, it won't be long before anything goes. Even if you think that the use in the Bourdain documentary is ethical, is there enough upside to open this Pandora's box? We think the answer is no. No, whatever the path may be to universal enlightenment, we can get there without reanimating the dead. I told you this would be a fun segment, right? (laughs) Um, I have to wonder, did it not occur to them to have the people that received the emails read this and say, Andy sent me this and then just read it? Because, I mean, that just feels like they could have avoided an entire ethical minefield. Yeah, you're so right. Yeah. Um, I, I, they stepped on a rake. Yeah, I think this is the thing is they didn't think it would be a big deal and Helen Rossner noticed it and it became more of a thing. And I think the answer is that this is the kind of thing we have discussions like this about. And the next documentary says, you know what? Let's disclose this. We'll still use it, but we're going to disclose it. Or let's not use it and use somebody else instead. Whatever. But they'll, they'll probably think about it a little bit more. That's all I'm saying is maybe think about it a little more. Um, a couple stories before we go. And thank you all for being with us. Uh, and thank you, panelists, for being with us. Um, one story before we go. Uh, Harry and I are residents of the Bay Area. I just wanted to point out this story in the New York Times this week, headlined, Tech Workers Who Swore Off the Bay Area Are Coming Back. Anybody who has been in the Bay Area or San Francisco or anywhere in the surrounding for any amount of time remembers how many... They actually they remember when they lose track of how many times... The Bay Area in San Francisco is declared dead. I have lost track. It happened when I moved here uh, in the early 90s. It happened in the late 90s during the dot-com crash. It happened in the late 2000s during the financial crisis. It happened again during COVID. The idea that everybody's leaving the Bay Area and everybody's leaving San Francisco and they'll never come back. And everybody who's here goes, hmm, probably not. And then, you know, set your watch Wait for it. Wait for it. Oh, here's the piece about how they're not actually leaving. Or if they did leave, they're coming back. I, I, you know, I don't really have a lot to say about this other than it always happens like this. This is just how it is. This is San Francisco is a, a city and this is a region founded on the gold rush. Uh, people rush in to get rich and some of them stay and some of them go. And it's kind of a weird place, but there's value to be here. And so every time I'm just saying, if you see San Francisco declared dead again, uh, take the under. It's probably not going to happen. <laughs> and some of the people who did move, like move to San Jose, you know, if your new home is 45 minutes away from your old one, you really have not made right. a big life change. Uh, uh, a lot of the people move to, uh, to, uh, to Reno or, or Truckee, which is right on the Nevada border, which is not quite the same or having a vacation house up there and relocating temporarily. Like it's not, California is a big place too. So people can relocate out of the city center to a place where maybe they can afford a house. Uh, which they've been doing for many years. For, uh, since time and, immemorial. I know tons of people have moved up to, to Truckee or Tahoe. That's, that's not a new trend. Yeah. Yeah. So 
I'm just saying, um, San Francisco's never over. It's just never over. Everybody will always think it's over. It's never over. It always comes back. It always will. It changes all the time. And people do leave, but new people come, and that's just how it is. So anyway, uh, really a dog bites man kind of story. The tech workers are back. And finally, last story, my friend Glenn Fleischman is uh, really interested in lots of quirky things, including old type. He recently bought a replica of a Gutenberg Bible. It's Glenn. If you know Glenn, you know. You get it. But this story is so good, and I wanted to point it out to people. It's a story from AntigoneJournal.com. It is called Lorem Ipsum Filler Fail Killer Tale. If you've ever done any desktop publishing or seen weird things posted on the internet that don't make any sense, you might wonder, what is lorem ipsum dolor sit amet? This strange Latin-ish text that isn't quite right for Latin. Where did it come from? Why is it here? Well, this story tells all. uh, And the story is really pretty great because it turns out there are also great pictures of like... uh, bags of food packaging that never got the actual text that's supposed to go that's what lorem ipsum is it's filler text when the regular text isn't ready so you have a bag that says food and drink lorem ipsum dolor sit amet sounds great family special lorem ipsum dolor sit amet the idea there is you replace that with real text later sometimes people forget but it's a great way for designers to mock up a page and see what it looks like with type on it this story though is amazing because it finds that this particular order of latin occurred in a very particular book uh, that was an edition of cicero that was published in the early 20th century that that was widely distributed and probably somebody somewhere in the late 60s because that's when it originated it is not from time immemorial it is not from the time of the romans it is not from the time of gutenberg it's from the late 60s somebody was like oh we should probably have some fake text to put in there just in case and they picked up a used copy of this latin by Cicero and they dumped it in there and then changed it. The other great part of the story changed it to add some more English is ish punctuation and word endings so that anybody who knows Latin looks at it and goes, this isn't Latin. This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and they found the actual literal page number in the Cicero uh, book. Uh, in this particular edition that contains the source text. And there's actually a sort of a second page a little later that they kind of glommed together. I, I love this stuff. Like, yeah. like the fact that somebody on the internet went to the trouble to find out the origin of lorem ipsum text. Boy, it gives, talk about our first segment. This is what gives me hope for humanity that this kind of, <laughs> this kind of stuff is going on. That's great. Yeah. And the company that did yeah, it, it was Letrasat, which some of us get nostalgic about because they made these sheets of rub on letters, which before desktop publishing were super useful. Um, yeah, and so they needed some some Greek text. We call it Greek text, even though it looks Latin. The idea of filler text. Now, modern modern uh, journalism students and the like know that we generally use things that are misspelled words so that our spelling checkers catch them. Things like TK, you see that a lot, or lead spelled L-E-D-E, or deck spelled D-E-K, or other words that are sh- should be real words, but they're misspelled so that everybody knows that's not right. You shouldn't put that in the newspaper tomorrow. <laughs> you shouldn't post that on the website. But back in the day, Letraset needed some sort of generic text and anybody who knows what lorem ipsum is it's just like i feel like this is such a great origin story i i assume that this was an ancient printing pa- practice me too that's okay. the late 60s in london yep nope i remember i, I took I, I i took latin as my uh, as my language in high school 
And after my second year, I came across I came across Lorem Ipsum, and I decided to like try to translate it. I got to Lorem Ipsum Dolores Ahmed. I got as far as the whip is itself both pleasure and pain before realizing, okay, I'm in way over my head. This was fun, <laughs> but I'm not going to go any farther than this. It, one of the mind blowing things is that it's not Lorem; it's Delorem, right, and the right. DE is broken across the page break. And the person who was putting it in at Letraset just didn't care. Mm. Didn't care. You want what, since we're talking about Letraset, you want to know something else that's really really fun. If you look at like if if you look at the actual like movie props that uh, that are made for like you know uh, military backpacks and high tech uh, like futuristic rebreathers and stuff like that. And there's like the you know how like a lot of stuff will have like if you buy a chainsaw, will have like a, a block of safety information like somewhere saying oh by the way make sure that you bleed off the gases from this before you m- remove this housing. There are, there are a bunch of uh, the Letraset uh, rub on. Uh, lettering pack- packages they have like a block of text that simply said oh this is the copyright uh, letter set uh you, you apply these by simply putting the letter on marking <laughs> with the spoon and so you'll have like boba fett's rocket pack on the back has the instructions from letter set on how to apply press off lettering yeah. <laughs> it's oh, like maybe somebody, it's upside down but it, it's like giving a cake or decoration order and saying okay put this word in underneath that put this other word and they write underneath that put this other word and it's like no no don't don't print the instructions. Like just a, follow the instructions. Like, Bo, like Bojack Horse, Horseman. That was like that was a running gag, like all season. Where like at the like the final episode of the season, there's a banner after after like this person always gets this screwed up. There's a banner that simply says, "Come on, this should not be this hard." Instead of <laughs> "Happy Birthday." <laughs> well, this Sorry. has been irrelevant a, to our conversation. This but has we been still a, had, see, we still had magnetic tape. Everybody left. who stuck with us for two hours, we turned it around, didn't it? We saved it. There you go. We did it. We made it fun eventually, uh, and that's in, in large part due to my wonderful panel. Thank you all. Rosemary Orchard, where can people find you and the stuff that you do? Uh, if you go to rosemaryorchard.com, then there's links to all of the things, social media, podcasts, books, etc. So it's all there. It's so easy. Rosemaryorchard.com. It's just your name. That's, that's, uh, thank you for uh, making it so easy to find your stuff. Harry McCracken, how about you? Festcompany.com for most of it. Um, Twitter. I'm Harry McCracken. That's those, where you those, get your Radio Shack content. Those are probably the two go-to places. Once in a great while, I write about Radio Shack, even for Fast Company, and they haven't fired me yet. <laughs> very good, very good. And Andy and Otko, how about you? Uh, well, for Harry, I'm owed like 10 years worth of Battery of the Month Club, 9-volt batteries. <laughs> I don't know if you're the person I need to talk to. Not my problem. So okay. <laughs> you but, have to so talk I, to the manager. I, I, I've heard that a lot. Uh, but uh, spell my last name, which is no easy feat. Uh, I'm at Anatko on Twitter, Anatko on Instagram. Uh, you can also uh, listen to me. I'm, I'm on most Fridays, sometimes Thursdays on WGBH, Boston's NPR station. Just go to WGBHnews.org. And if you search for my name there, you'll see all of my weekly tech roundups, news roundups. And I want to thank Leo one last time with a little bit of a story. I was in Maui last week. Uh, my family and I did a uh, an adventure on what's called the Maui Sailing Canoe, MauiSailingCanoe.com. We're out there. We're uh, snorkeling. We're having a good time. And as we're uh, sailing along, the guy Sage, who is uh, piloting this uh, boat with his son uh, named Crew, he was th- his name is Crew. He was also the crew, which I thought was pretty clever. Um, he says, what do you do? And, you know, I do that, oh, boy, I write on the Internet, and I use podcasts, and I have to explain podcasts. I'm like, tech podcasting. And he goes, oh, Leo Laporte. (laughs) (laughs) He said the magic words. That was it. Tech podcasting. Oh, Leo Laporte. So thank you, Leo. 
They're listening to you in Hawaii, where you are right now. And Leah will be back next week. Thank you all for letting me sub in. Thanks to my guests again. Thanks to Ant for sitting in the producer's chair this week. And guess what, folks? Another twit. It barely fits, but it's in the can. <laughs>